if you guys are like praying people, you better get a, you better get a, you know, pastor in here. It's just about that time. Like that's, and I don't remember seeing like some kind of light, but I remember not, not feeling anything. I remember not seeing anybody. I remember just not being just weird, this weird space that I was in. Welcome back to Never Left Behind the podcast. In today's episode, we are joined with Jordan Hillstrom, who served in the 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment in the Army. We talk about his deployments overseas, including the incredible story of him and his brother both being deployed at the same time and the journey that Jordan went through to find his brother after being blown up by an IED. We also get into Jordan's near-death experience, his transition from the military and where he is at now in life, and the various organizations that he supports in continuing to serve other fellow veterans. We are honored to sit down with Jordan and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Jordan. How are you doing? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You didn't answer my question first, though. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing phenomenal. There's a <laughs> lot of cliches in this world that people are like, you know, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm, I'm doing good, man. Life, good. life is good. Well, I uh, I know we're going to talk about a lot of things, but I, I, I don't want to throw you too much of a curveball, but I do want to get your perspective because I think it is important right now. You know, you mm. served in Afghanistan for a little bit of time. Um, which we're going to get into your experience, you know, overseas. Um, but, you know, I've been asked this question a lot this week. And so that's why I'd like to get your perspective. Like, how have you been feeling and how have you been di- digesting all the news that's been going on with uh, obviously the chaos in Afghanistan? You know, it's very visceral. Like my, it's an emotional and not very like a, Oftentimes you have something happens in your life and you can respond with a very analytical, very like direct response. And for some reason, this has been so emotional for me, like heaviness, like a, you know, it's hard to explain, but I'll explain it by saying this. A lot of people have come to me for like answers because they're like, well, you've been to Afghanistan a few times. You should understand what it's like. And I want, I want to hear from your perspective. Mm-hmm. One example would be today I got home and there's a pest management guy there that trying to kill some black widows for us. Anyways. So I talked to him a few times and he's like, um, I think he scoped me out a little bit before he came to my house. Hey, you're a veteran. Like, interesting. You're a pest management guy, but all right. So he's like, I want to get your take on this Afghanistan thing, man. So like he was amped up waiting to talk to me. Mm -hmm. So he knew I was on the radar all week this week. He gets there and he's just like, he's got guns loaded with questions to ask. And, you know, I'm I'm emotional. I'm I'm frustrated because, you know, it's like kind of, what is this for? Mm -hmm. What are we, what do we do those, you know, hundreds of missions as Rangers for? Why do we lose our, our friends, our leaders? You know, why did Mac die? Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of where I sometimes will get stuck in that loop. But what I have to look at is like perspective wise in this, this life of ours, it's, it's a short life. It's, it's nothing but a flicker. And I have to realize the time we spent overseas was worth something, regardless of whatever politician is in office today, what we did, did, I'm going to use the word shore up. It shored up our national security in the sense that we were fighting the enemy abroad to not allow them to have a foothold and a strength to come back over here and fight us here, mm-hmm. to not plot another 9-11. And I do know firsthand we had a positive reaction to keeping those those threats at bay. So I'm not going to just say my service was in vain or people died in vain. That's that's it's crap and it's lunacy. And anybody mm-hmm. on the ground knows that if you mm-hmm. were a you know, combat type fighter like like we were. But in the sense that 
America has always been kind of a beacon for the last how many hundreds of years now, that beacon of, of hope. People come here because they know that, that we're going to give them the opportunity to prosper, the opportunity for safety. We're going to take care of you. You know, look at the last last year and how much stuff from the equality front we fought, you know, so, social issues, the pandemic and all these things that we've kind of been torn apart internally. And I, I still believe we're the best country in the world, not because we all are, you know, ducks in a row, but because at the end of the day, we take care of each other. We take care of people that come in that need refuge. And this is not a left or right issue. It's just not a pol- pol- mm-hmm. you know, political issue, but I it's feel a like human there's issue. a small demographic of leaders that are creating a, a political issue out of this. Mm-hmm. So going back to the Afghanistan piece here, the reason I'm so disappointed is because people around the world are looking to us for hope and that hope is such a powerful tool. And they, when they see us crumble the way we did, I feel mm-hmm. like we failed them in providing hope and hope is the biggest tool that we can give the entire world. So that's, that's like my biggest concern right now is there's a void in a vacuum that's been created by our pulling out in the way we did and a lack of hope. So with those two combined, I feel like a lot of people, there are a few that are going to face death, torture, rape, murder, you know, all these things are real to them. There's persecution at scale over that's happening and there's no hope. Yeah. We can't even promise our own citizens to come out. Why would they think they have any hope anymore? Mm. That's my biggest frustration. Yeah. And, uh, I was, I was listening to NPR today and, uh, I can't remember which reporter it was, but one of the reporters from, they were interviewing somebody from the Brookings Institute and, uh, she's based in Germany. And that was like the number one thing she actually said. So it's interesting that you had that same perspective is she, she basically said, you know, the rest of the world is looking to the U S but I think, and this is her perspective looking from Germany. She said, I think the the U.S. is so consumed by their own internal issues that they have failed to look outward for the last however many years. And I was like, damn, I don't even, that is such a powerful statement that I cannot disagree with. Which is, it's sad to hear about because we used to be the the country and the nation that had, lack of a better term, our shit together and and want to take care of other countries and, and keep everyone, you know, um, lack of a better term again, in line. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It, it's just so frustrating to see, and I just wanted to get your perspective. I know we're gonna we're gonna dive a lot more into your you know your story, and I'm sure this will come up again because, you know, it's it's the main thing in the news right now. And I know it's uh, you know, when we start talking about our experiences overseas, it's just you you can't help but relate it to to events that are happening today. Um, go ahead. I I guess one kind of thought on that is if you've known me for a minute my entire life is roped around or or wrapped around the idea of providing hope for others, trying to build people up. Mm -hmm. So in our circles, a lot of times in the veteran community, something like this happens and we get so angry so quick. And a lot of times you get the alcohol involved and that doesn't help. But my concern here is if we don't create a positive narrative in our country right now and create a a united voice, this could get pretty ugly because everything going on right now Mm -hmm. in our country with some of the, without going down this, this COVID scenario, a lot of, divide has happened in the last year, you know, mm-hmm. the black lives matters and a lot of the protests and the George Floyd scenarios, there's so much division happening right now mm-hmm. that if we're not careful, if we don't create a narrative that's positive and uplifting, we, we might go down the slippery slope that I don't, I don't like. Yeah. So for me, my biggest thing now is, okay, how do I take a crap situation and, po- and impact my circle of influence positively, my family to start with. Um, and then from there, the community. So like one example, why I think this is important for guys like us that are our natural leaders. And then we've had the ability to get honed in the military, like hone those skills. 
is, you know, I, I'm joining the HOA board, small issue, but I, I believe, okay, let's, let's impact something positively. Mm-hmm. I'm joining, uh, just got nominated to be on a board position for a business network locally, um, joining some other political movements and in, in in like a leadership role, because I feel like, um, in like next Tuesday, my wife and I are going to our first school board meeting. Cause I'm like, we'll gripe and complain, but if we don't actually get plugged in and, and, and try to be a positive voice, everybody loses. If we just want to gripe and be in our own little circles and scream about angry stuff, like we, we have to be that person to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stand up, put my hand up and I'm going to, I'm going to jump into this, mm-hmm. into the conversation. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, you can only control what you can control, but you can always position yourself in a place to actually take control. And, um, it's an important thing that, you know, you can, you can be the loudest voice on the street, but until you actually take action, there's no point in screaming. And, uh, that's unfortunately how a lot of things are geared these days. The loudest person on the interwebs is getting all the attention. Um, but unfortunately there's so many actions happening in the background that nobody ever hears about them. And one thing I've been incredibly motivated about lately is, uh, we're getting tied in with a lot of veterans, a lot of people, me and Tom in particular, Mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll tell, you know, I'll explain more about this later, but, um, basically it's a, it's a network we're trying to create. Um, Tim Torres, you know, Timmy. Yeah. Tito. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he, uh, he started, uh, uh, basically it's, it, it initially was thought of as a blog, but he's expanded that. And obviously with everything going on in Afghanistan now, it's kind of become more and it's, uh, it's, it's called a voice for two nations. And he was really just going to tell the stories of American veterans as well as Afghan veterans. Um, but obviously that's expanded and now he's creating this network of incredible veterans who are trying to really make a positive impact overseas and get people out of Afghanistan. And one thing I was really impressed and surprised about is he was like, look, we have all the money in the world for this. Like we really do. We have millions. We have a network of millions of dollars that we could pull from. We have the aircraft on standby. The issue we're having right now is trying to get people to be able to fill out the visas and get out of the country. And I was just like, damn, that's so cool to see how quickly you can unite a a bunch of veterans and actually take some real action that's going to make it possible for people to get out of the country faster. Now, there's other things at play that unfortunately we can't look out for, say, the citizens that are behind, you know, the Taliban lines that can't get through the checkpoints to get to the airport. Like, that's such a frustrating thing that I wish, you know, there was obviously some different policies enacted to make it possible. Um, but it's just, it's uplifting to see that veterans are trying to take action to really look out for their Afghan partners that we've had overseas for the last 20 years. Totally agree. Can I, can I tell a quick story about Mr. Torres? Yeah. He's going to hate me for this, but it's going to go somewhere (laughs) positive. So it's, it's funny, but it's sad at the same time. So after Mac died, um, there was obviously the emotions running high. There's a lot of things happening. And then we got a new platoon sergeant, which is actually, a, he's a phenomenal guy. Curry, just, just a phenomenal leader, but he tried to fill some pretty big shoes and he was kind of doing it maybe too quickly. And he didn't maybe in that moment empathize with what we were grieving in that time. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyways, uh, right when Deco got stood up, so Torres gets selected, right. To go to Deco. Yep. And I think I'm a tab spec for, I forget actually what rank I was. I don't remember, but I remember him coming to my barracks room. I think I'm still upstairs from right. And he has already been out drinking and I'm in the barracks and he brings some alcohol into my barracks room and we're drinking together. And, uh, he's like, fuck you guys, man. He goes, you guys hate me. All I did for you guys, like just going off, just unleashing on me. Like I was kind of like the, the figurehead of the whole entire platoon, probably cause I'm the only loser back left in the barracks still. So I just like, you know, 
by default got the got the gripe from him and and i felt bad because he was a good dude he's a phenomenal like his his heart is so big but back then he was probably a young sergeant probably um smoked me many of times so my my view of him was not great yet because he had always had a lot of negative because he was always the corrective action kind of guy with me because i was you know below him in rank anyways but I say that because I've, I've watched his life since then. I've watched the things he's done. I've been so impressed with his ability to, you know, man up, so to speak, from where he was at and the toiling and the having to go to deco. And it was almost like the black sheep, right? We, we gave all these guys away and they kind of felt like they were they were not wanted anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was obviously not the case. They were, they were not really like a draft happening in the background. Um, kind of a luck of the draw scenario. But anyways, I remember there and then I was kind of watching in this last thing with the Pat Tillman Foundation and some of the things he's been doing. I'm, I'm so impressed with guys like that that can step up. And I truly believe they're the leaders of, you know, tomorrow, like in, in America. And that's the hope I see. And mm-hmm. I'm so excited. So, Mr. Torres, my hat's off to you. Next time I have a drink, I'll pour some out for you. You know, that's a really good point. And I'm, I'm glad you actually said that. And, uh, you know, everybody hates politics and I get it. Like, unfortunately, it is what rules the land around here, right? It is who makes the policies and enacts certain things. However, Remember coming out of even World War II or Vietnam, we had a lot of political leaders that came out of that those combat zones and ended up taking office and ended up leading the country. And I feel like we had a pretty good run for a while there that we were the beacon of hope really for a lot of people around the world. And who knows, maybe this is the time where you see all these veterans taking action. You see a lot of them realizing that there's a lot of shitty things happening in the world, the policies that need to be there to protect not only ourselves, but other also our, our um, you know, brothers and sisters abroad. Maybe this is the time that a lot more veterans are going to step up to the plate and and become politicians and take control of the government again and and run it in a way that's going to be empathetic to all people and not just you know one side of the aisle or the other. And that's what I would love to see. Hundred mm-hmm. percent agree. And that's the kind of guy that I would I would put my and I I have been in combat with him, but. If I had to put my life on the line again for his political campaign, I would. Mm-hmm. I'd fly across the country for the guy because I believe he's going to do that. He'll he'll be that guy that's he's going to say "f you" to the left and "f you" to the right. I believe in America first, and that's what we need. Yeah, it's not a it's not a left or right thing. They're both going to screw us at the end of the day. So yeah, let's find some guys that care, like because they've lost people for for the fight, right? And they're still in the fight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I don't want to backtrack too much, but I do want to get into your story. We had to play catch up because this week we uh, did an offhand episode of Afghanistan. So obviously wanted to hear your take on that. Real real quick. Are you having a hard time hearing him? It's not quite as clear as yours, but you know what? can roll on anyhow. Maybe it's here. Push this mic in a little bit or something. No, it's how it is every week. That's better already. Is it? Yeah, I couldn't hear you. I think you were sitting too far back. You know what it was? It was because this was was probably angled. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yep. The, the angle of the dangle, man. I see it every yeah, time. Man. You gotta fix uh, now that you first. Gotta, now you gotta find that time in the slot. I see. I see Dan's every week. I have it like this, and then Dan turned his. So I was like, I'm so, gonna but, try Bo, something Bo, to turn it's not on your my fault. face. You know, in the military, they like hurry up and wait. Game. You get yeah. an hour early to wait. You know, there's no reason. But do you realize the older you get, there was a there's a reason because leaders are trying to get things figured out. So it's not. I was like, I'm man. checking Dan's my. Gotta my be a better leader here. <laughs> All right. Um, so Jordan, you and I have known each other for. Gosh, how long now? Uh, 13, 14 years, 13, 14 years, something like that. Yeah, it's been a while, man. Man, we're old, too old. <laughs> we got kids and stuff. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, 
I know you came from a household of two, like a, a ton of kids. Can you can you explain? Because I, I know your story a little bit, but can you explain like what inspired you to join the military, and especially what inspired you to volunteer to become a ranger? So you guys have been on farms before, right? Field trips and whatnot. You've seen those feeding troughs, right? Yeah. So we had a feeding trough in our kitchen because we had so many kids. Like it was hard to feed the whole family. So <laughs> no, I kid. So, sorry, mom and dad. No, it was um. The horses I had 15, poked their heads I had in. fifteen siblings. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, fifteen. No, I sixteen. Uh, sixteen total, but I was one of them. So fifteen what? plus me. Yeah, that's dude, insane. It's crazy, crazy, and not is, and not it, Mormon. Dude, come on! I got a hate on them. There's a lot of good Mormons. <laughs> I got I got friends that are Mormon. I'm just stereotyping friend. No, no, they're good people. No, we're not Mormon. Um, you know, I grew up Christian. Um, there's a lot of big families around that culture that have large families and mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it's right or wrong. Uh, there's some difficulties that come from big families, but now, you know, as we all gotten older, it's, it's pretty awesome seeing, you know, and I'll go back to the history here, but you know, like my older brother that was, and we'll talk about his story that was blown up and you know, that he was a diplomat. Now we're working together. My younger brother's a developer. I've got a couple of sisters that are nurses. Like a lot of, I got one that's about to be a realtor. So like a lot of like producers in the world now. Yeah. And so that's mm -hmm. pretty awesome to see kind of my parents have raised some okay kids. We're, we're doing okay. But yeah, gr growing up, you know, is one of those things that um, I didn't like my parents. There's no history. I don't think in my family actually with military. My grandpa died when I was, you know, my dad was pretty young, never knew him. Um, on my mom's side, it was... I'm not going to say it was anti-military, but they were farmers. Um, my grandpa owned Ace Hardware. Then my mom, my mom was getting, you know, raised. And so it was kind of just neutral, never promoted military, but I would probably say almost on a negative side, just based off the religious affiliation that I grew up with probably. Um, but then for me, I guess I grew up on working on dairy farms and that, you know, very rural kind of conservative circle. So I always had this like the idea of the flyover states, you know, the Nebraska's, the mm -hmm. Wisconsin's, those mm -hmm. the states that are really like kind of missed almost in most conversations. Um, oftentimes that's kind of where I grew up. And so when, when nine 11 happened, um, I was too young, obviously to join, but I remember in eighth grade when I was watching it unfold, seeing people, um, you know, on live TV falling to their deaths and in hearing that splatter, you know, on the news and they didn't have good censoring back then and mm -hmm. nor they probably done it then, but, Mm. I don't know what happened. And I guess even try to, sorry, reverse a little bit here. When I was in fifth grade, I had a Vietnam era veteran teacher. And, and this guy was like the epitome of a soldier, not from like, I want to have blood and guts, but he, he understood the big picture of war is not pretty. And, and we wished there was never war. And he actually talked about it in fifth grade, like some of the gore of war, <laughs> but he always talked about, I wish, I wish people could get along. He was not this hippie peace loving person but he wished there could be peace. He wished there could be a reality where we could live in harmony. But unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. And I don't think it ever will be. Mm -hmm. um, but he instilled such a American value and, and to not just a, to be a fighter, to be a soldier, but to take care of your neighbor. And that was really the American way. Um, and that was really cool to see because I had done some research post fifth grade and I saw a lot of you know negativity and the Vietnam War was, it was ugly and it was a lot of nastiness. The, the, the departure of our you know, our presence there was obviously similar to what we're feeling right now. And, and, but even more so, you know, he was talking about getting tomatoes and onions and, and, you know, essentially getting shot with tear gas just for getting off buses. Mm, and so the effect of that, I, 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 he talked about that, but he was so positive and I'm like, you know, he's got something I want. Um, so he kind of planted the seed of, of service and then about serving your, your neighbor to your left and right. And, um, that was cool to see. 
Um, but then 9-11 happened. And I remember the teacher walking in. Um, or actually, she was at the door and someone knocks on the door and she's got papers in her hand. And I remember I didn't hear the voices said nothing, but I watched her like her face just go white. She was from the East Coast and we were mm-hmm. in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and she dropped her papers. And I heard those papers hit the ground. And I'm like, that was the loudest noise I've ever heard. Something was oh. going on. And a young kid had no context to that, but it's something was going on. You can, you can feel it. And so she went right to the TV. And then the, I think the principal made an announcement, like turn TVs off. Like they knew teachers would be going there. Right. Mm-hmm. But they wanted to shelter the kids. So they turned the TV up. We already saw enough that we were like, oh, this is bad. Um, neither tower had collapsed at that point. I don't believe like obviously the plane had hit. People mm-hmm. were jumping, but Mm-hmm. So they turned the TV off. We were stuck there for like three hours, um, but it was the longest three hours of my life. But it was the weirdest thing. Like at eighth grade, I knew I was going to be a soldier. Like mm-hmm. I, I knew I had to go and protect my neighbor to left and right. Like my fifth grade teacher was in my head at that point. That just gave me chills. I'm not kidding. Like when you said that. Yeah. Um, and I guess to, I get kind of emotional talking about this now, but so I'll jump forward a few years and I'll come back to our, you know, the story and the chronological events. So it led me to the military and stuff, but a couple of years ago, my brother and I, Kirk, um, we decided to go to New York, um, do like a, like a life coach, motivational, like, um, professional speaker, I guess you'll say, mm. and Eric Thomas. And we went to his, one of his events and went to a couple of hockey games and just go experience New York with brothers, you know, the whole Times square tourist thing and a little bit busier than your experience there, Dan, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, we missed our train going back to, from, from the Long Island area, from that game, we missed our train going back. So we ended up getting stuck there and we were sitting at the gas station. Like what the crap do we do for the next hour and a half? Thinking about Uber, we couldn't get an Uber out. That was like 12 o'clock. Couldn't get an Uber for like an hour or something. Go just wait the train out. Um, and some random dudes in a suburban rolled up. They're like, they're like, Hey, we're going to play street hockey. You guys want to come? And we're like, probably not a good idea. But why not? Right. <laughs> But the best, they had like Mighty Ducks gear in their vehicle, like the nice. Suburban. <laughs> and uh, I'll say this though, like I would never do that again. Never suggest it. Like you got put in kind of a crappy situation for a moment based off these kids are younger, um, doing illicit drugs in front of me and my brother. I'm like, holy crap, like what do we get ourselves into? Mm. So we get, we get out, we go to this bar and we're hanging out, just waiting for the train. And these are younger kids, mm-hmm. 21, probably not even 20. Um, well, I guess, yeah, 21, 22-ish, that area. So we're talking for a bit and I was just kind of hanging out, waiting. And, and my brother was talking to most of these younger kids about his couple years younger than him. But anyways, I heard him say, like, my brother was a soldier. And so like they pulled me into the conversation and it became real all of a sudden that these kids, every one of them had a story. Mm-hmm. And it was weird because like the music actually stopped in this bar. <laughs> and there was like, to me, a bonfire, like all these people in a circle, but there was no music. There was nothing in the middle. We were just kind of standing there talking and they're telling me their stories. They're talking about, you know, one of the kids talked about his dad committing suicide that he understood anyways, that he committed suicide on, on. So I'm thinking in my mind, okay, at eighth grade, the guy jumps out. Like I put his dad in the, that scene, right? Probably not, but that's what I kind of pictured. And I remember talking to the other people and about, you know, losing a brother, losing an uncle, losing their mothers, like all these stories. And I, and I'm like, you know, this is crazy because I don't know you. I had no idea who you were. You were, you were one years old and 9-11 hit. You were two years old, whatever. Mm. I said, but when I, when I saw that happen, I knew nobody in New York. I'd mm. never been to New York. Didn't really know what New York was like. Didn't have a TV in my house growing up. So my exposure to that wasn't, wasn't great. But I was affected so much by that event and by the people like you guys that I, I was compelled to join. And it was the craziest thing watching these American, like grown men and women crying, like in this weird circle at the bar. Mm. And 
it, it was in that time too, there's a lot of negative news about how we're so divided and whatnot. And it was so real to me that these people are affected. And this is why I joined. This is why I joined because these people were hurting. And so I think there's this, this weird, like, you know, energy thing that does happen where it connects people in general, mm -hmm. but watching these people cry and break down and, and hugging me, thanking me for defending their, their families and standing up for them. I'm like, that's what America's about, man. That, mm -hmm. that idea, it's such a small idea, but it's, it's so powerful. Well, I don't know if you guys have noticed, um, it's still a very short amount of time. This Afghanistan crisis has been going on, but I've kind of noticed a little bit of unity mm, yeah. with, with some of our people. Yeah. Like I've been on social media and watching people left and right that are both posting the same thing about Afghanistan, like help these women, help these people, you know, yeah. and it's kind of interesting to see that mm, people are kind of coming together a little bit, not as much as 9-11, but they're still coming together. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Like people are feeling there's, it for vets. There's definitely know, still, the, for, there's still the fringe cases that I've seen that are mm -hmm. just complete assholes, whatever. Yeah. But, um, I agree. I think I'm seeing a lot more unity and I, I agree it's the left and the right. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing with all the media hits that we've been kind of going on is we've been on left media and right media and they're both asking the same questions because they both care about the same thing. And I think that's that just shows you that I think everybody cares about the same thing as well for the most part yeah. in this country right now with what's going on in Afghanistan. So it's and it's powerful. I agree. And I was thinking about that. I actually posted one of you guys' interviews on my Facebook feed, like the first honest interview on MSNBC. And you know what? I started to think about this and I'm like, how like sided am I? If I that's my preface. <laughs> it really shows my bias, right? My hand in this thing. And, and and I started to think about it. And I'm like, I heard the questions and I felt like they were honest and they wanted to know an answer. And okay. they were giving, and I know you and I know Tom well enough, like you guys might say something that might not be against party line or against party lines. And like, if you think about what they've been doing for the last few years, but it got me thinking like they're part of this game too. Like I think a lot of these people intend to be good journalists and they want to do the right thing, but they get stuck in this machine, man. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that, I, I agree. I think this is actually being used for a good tool. I, I hate what's happening, but I do believe that it's, it's going to have a good common good for the, the American people that I, I hope will turn and then use that energy to bring over to Afghanistan and other parts of the world that are hurting. So I, well, I, agree I guess the, the good thing, well, I haven't listened to all the interviews you guys have been on probably 30 or more now at this point lot. in the past five days. But I've kind of noticed from the ones that I've been watching or paying attention to is that they're not for the most part, correct me if I'm wrong, asking like trick questions. They're yeah. kind of just trying to get information they from were, you guys' perspective. Yeah, there were only two. There've only been okay. two out of, but I mean, out of these 30 interviews and you got to think, you it's know, you've got, I don't know, five, six questions that comes out of each interview. So to only be thrown a curveball twice, because they were clearly trying to fill a narrative, but that's neither here nor mm -hmm. there. Um, yeah, for it to be relatively like, I think, I think people, not just, uh, you know, the news media, but generally the American public really want to know what's going on. And it's the first time I feel like in a long time that people are actually interested with what, you know, uh, American service members are going through. And it's kind of nice to see that again because it's been such a long time that I feel like it's been like since America's cared about yep. servicemen and women. It feels different for me, but it's because I work with you guys every day Yeah, and I'm a civilian. So I feel like I'm somehow sucked into where I probably hear more and see more than the average civilian that's asking these questions. Like what is going on over there? Yeah. Bo, you're more military than I am, dude. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> 
don't even say 100%, that. Not in the fake regard. Like, I think you, like, no, like, and to your core, you should have been a ranger before. I should have been the camera guy. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I, I, well, I wanted to go to the Marine Corps. I wanted to become a sniper. You're not too old. I'm just going to throw that out there. No, I, I I'm 31. <laughs> I could still try. These young kids yeah, would man. smoke me. Yeah, well, Dan will get you in shape, right? I would be um, the old man in boot camp. Hey, deliberate discomfort starts next month again. You'll be all right. Yeah, that's right. That's true. You know, I, I would I would question that people have lost hope in America and the byproduct is the disrespect towards the service. Mm. Because think about this. I, I think most soldiers that I know, like you get caught in this machine where like if your job is to go and capture kill missions, like you have to like when you're in basic training and we'll maybe go into this path for a second here. Um, you know, I joined the military and stuff. We obviously everybody goes for basic training and this basic stuff. And, but when you, I'm this farm kid, this religious, like grew up in a religious home and very sheltered. I'm this small little fish in a little, little beta fish tank. Right. If you can imagine that. And all of a sudden the same fish, the, the, the tank cracks and I'm poured into the ocean and it's this melting pot I've seen. Well, yeah. So you go to this melting pot and you have all these different, you know, ethnicities and all that, all the backgrounds that you come across, different creeds, all that stuff. And, and you're forced to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you realize like we're not that different, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was really awesome to start with. Um, but all of a sudden, like everything you're doing is like kill, 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 cold blue steel, like you know, like all these things about killing. Everything yeah. in your in your world is about murdering people, but for like you're cheering it on, like this is my new reality. And I always kind of use when I talk to people, like to ask questions about like what, what was it like? The hardest thing for me when I realized that like your brain gets rehardwired to like where killing is your normal. Like that's you should be the best person at your job. You're a master at your craft. What do you do? Like I murder people. Like that's <laughs> and, and not going off that tangent, but that's what they're trying to train you to do is be the best, the best damn killer you can be. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the hardest things I had to deal with. And I think that's not but most soldiers that that I know that I've served with, that's not about who they are, man. They mm-hmm. they want a, a common greater good for this world they want they actually want peace mm-hmm. and, and but you get caught in this moment though when you're in combat to to survive you go into this like this mindset i think a lot of times like it's it's kind of a, a laugh or cry scenario so it's like you you cheer that that culture of killing and in and, and that environment you have to because that's the reality you're dealt with but if you were able to pull out for a second you know pull out the tree line and see your life most people don't actually want to be in that situation where they're put in that position yeah well right. I, re- I i remember a few people and you probably had it too but i remember a few people in, in basic training um what do they call that where they they don't want to fire their weapon anymore what? oh conscientious objectors. yeah conscious objectors so we had i think two, two i think we ended up having two or two or three from our platoon and i remember one guy in particular uh was the best marksman that they said they've ever had in basic training, this dude was putting rounds on top of rounds. Like he was like, I've never shot before, but he took a very meticulous approach to marksmanship and he was the best marksman. And, um, like he just decided the third day at the range when we were finally going through qualifications, he was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't fire this gun anymore. I can't. I think it was when he was finally seeing silhouettes and stuff. He was like, I couldn't imagine doing this to a real person. Mm. And he decided to be a conscientious objector and he was like, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And, uh, I remember, I remember so many people giving him shit and stuff, but me personally, I've always been a relatively empathetic person. Um, and I remember thinking like, I'm doing this because I've committed to it, but I could understand why somebody would back out and decide that they don't want to take somebody else's life anymore. And at least you're honest about it. 
Yeah. As that was actually going to be my question. You guys kind of both answered it, but I was going to ask not so much of a too much of a civilian question, but for, <laughs> I, I'm just curious if you're trained from the ground up and they rewire your, your mindset, do you see a lot of people that don't hesitate to kill somebody that like they just don't care? It, it's whatever. Or do you still see people that struggle with it and they don't want to take that shot? So like from my perspective, obviously in the Ranger regiment, by the time you get to that point where you're on the ground in assault force, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're trained to in a certain degree now mm -hmm. where it's like, you, you know, you vetted these people out. There's, I think there was one or two in Seco actually that were, were RFS or kicked out because they did take that stance. And mm -hmm. I, I kind of made a joke about it. Cause then I'll go to why I made a joke. I do think there's a time and a place for those people that aren't, they have this conviction not to kill. And I'm hundred percent for them actually. Mm -hmm. There's like, like medics, medics shouldn't really carry guns. Honestly, should, should help people. Um, but Tell there's ben people Garf like, in that. Uh, no, 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 Ben, 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 <laughs> I wasn't talking about you. Okay. <laughs> hey, what was that story? What was the example of that movie that came out a few years ago? I forget what it's called. Um, there was that one guy that, uh, saved like 40 people and roped them down and went to anyways. So like there, there is a time and a place for those yeah. people, but not Ben, not Ben Garfin. Um, <laughs> No, I, the reason I made a joke about that is like my introduction to the military was like this guy that joined and he made a mistake and re he realized apparently, and he became first a conscientious objector and mm. then that didn't work to get him out. So he decided to be suicidal mm. and then Dan can probably attest to this. If you get anybody suicidal in your basic training unit, it's like they take their shoelaces away. Yep. They're going to sit call all the time. You have to like really? guard on their bunk. Oh, yeah. Like we had, so you don't get much sleep anyways, but the time you do get screwed because what happens is like, I was just a normal dude trying to get through and figure out basic training, and all that stuff, like everybody else. But my battle buddy on the bottom bunk was, you know, he said suicidal and he told me one day, like, I'm really not, but I want to get out of the military. So that was his card. So like, mm -hmm. I got pissed because I knew he wasn't. And I got so angry. Like I'm, I told him, I want to just do it. Cause I was so pissed at the repercussions that I had. For instance, they would wake him up every 30 minutes on the hour because they were up. miserable. So why wouldn't he? Well, a default or a byproduct of that was I was getting woken up, right? Yep. And then he'd go to sick call in the morning. Well, guess who's got his freaking rucksack on the on the 10 mile today? So I'm carrying two rucksacks and I'm like four foot seven soaking wet, right? <laughs> now I'm five foot seven. Easy guys. Um, <laughs> still, still soaking wet. But so like that was kind of my introduction to basic training was this guy that tried to use these cards. And that's what I kind of feel like sometimes is there's not a true conviction. It's like, I want to easy out. Yeah. Right. So that's sometimes you have to kind of weed, weed between those things. Well, but. apparently too, you got a lot of guys right now that are claiming uh, suicidal so that they can get out of the Marine Corps specifically is what I've been hearing. I don't know how the mm. other branches are, but there's a lot of Marines right now that are finding ways to get out or claiming suicidal or are using the whole vaccine thing as to, uh, to I, get out of the Marine Corps. I have been hearing that, but I, I will say in general, and I, you know, don't quote me on this. People should do their own research, but, um, I have heard, and I don't know if this is all relation. It, it has a suicidal thing been like recent developments or? Is oh it... yeah. I mean like maybe a couple months. Okay. Well, it's at least been a couple months. Uh, I did hear that the uh, national suicide hotline for veterans has been like, has seen like a 15% increase or something Jeez. like that, which is terrible. I, I just read some of their server, like servers were actually crashing like, yep. based off their call volume. A lot of it's VoIP anyway. So it's not like it's a typical phone system as you guys probably know, but yeah, so, yeah a lot of times you call in, there's no response because it's down. Yeah, which is it's fucking sucks. But no, yeah, I, you know, you know, I'm, I don't know. It's I don't I don't know if I want to dive into that one, but it is frustrating to know <laughs> that people. Well, I'm just you know, I, it is frustrating to know that there's there's something 
that has turned into a political issue that has become a reason that people are no longer committed to the military, no matter what mm. the out, you know, outcome is. And, uh, I mean, I've, I mean, I let the military inject me with so much shit. I didn't care. I was like, if it's going to make me smallpox shot this yeah, month, boys, if it's going <laughs> to make me deployable, then yeah, stick it in me. I don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, it's frustrating to see because I, I still have friends who are still actively serving and I've seen their posts and being like, I'm going to get out because I'm not taking the shot and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I get it. It should be a personal, personal choice. But I also think that when the government decides that it's not going to be a personal choice mm -hmm. anymore, if you're serving in the military, then so be it. I mean, I didn't want the smallpox shot, but yeah, they gave it to me anyways. There's probably a bunch of people that, you know, like you look at uh, climbers that go to like Pakistan you know, or they climb like the tallest mountains in the world. They got to get all kinds of shots. Yeah. I mean, I don't, again, I don't want to dive too much. You open a can of worms, Bo. I know. Why'd Bo, you have why'd to you open the there, can man? of worms? <laughs> I, I was just, it was military related. <laughs> if you need help though, Bo will talk to you night or day. His phone is always on. That's right. You can find him at four. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can totally put my number out there. I feel like I get so much group text from Dan and Tom and our marketing PR. I feel like almost like hop out of the text just to go to sleep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Um, can imagine. All right. So, uh, to keep us on track, so you obviously joined base training, but you didn't tell me why did you want to be a ranger? So when, uh, my fifth grade teacher started talking about like warfare. So like we'd have like, um, I might throw my parents under the bus a few times here. So we have inter intramurals. I was not super athletic other than hockey. I was really good at hockey my entire life, but like football, I was like, whatever I can run and stuff. But so anyways, he always did intramurals like once or twice a week. So he'd stay after school. He would be the quarterback and throw. We'd play different sports, baseball, whatever. Um, so he, my parents had a couple of kids they had to worry about. So sometimes they were like a little bit late to pick up me. So I was always kind of that last kid to get picked mm -hmm. up. Not all the time, but that happened. And I'm not bitter, as you can tell. Um, so we were talking a few times, and he's talking about you know warfare, talking about conventional warfare versus non-conventional, talking about using actual Intel to be a better soldier, you know, and, and that's relatively forward thinking for most Vietnam era vets to think about there's a better way to soldier. Mm. And so he had given me some books and, and probably a, like above my pay grade, sort of speak with how old I was, but about Francis Marion, about mm. the revolutionary war, about some of the tactics that, that America had been deploying. And, and because we came out of, you know, such a culture of, you know, from the European way to fight was, was very prestigious. It's this, uh, gentleman like, right. And that mm -hmm. means open fields. There was, there was a lot of like brass behind you were going to be promoted based off the dig dignity in which they fought those battles. And so it was very counterintuitive to winning a war because we didn't have the munitions, the armament, we didn't have the manpower, um, the training and all the, the equipment. And then even provisions, like I remember reading stories about people's frostbit, you know, frostbit and feet and having to go to combat mm -hmm. with, with frostbite, they can hardly walk and they're mm -hmm. taping things on their feet and they're having to have like boards on their sticks on their legs to keep their feet from like falling apart. And that was like the combat scenario they're dealing with. So he talked about this guy named Francis Marion and he talked about, you know, he decided not to be conventional. He decided that he was going to use Creek beds as his, his first, um, uh, his first tactic, I guess, to start combating back against some of these, uh, tactics that the British were in, you know, employing on us. So anyways, um, going back to that. So then you get to the idea of Francis, Francis Marion being the original like, swamp fox as the, as we know in the Ranger regiment. 
um, to what I understand is the, the original founder of the, the regiment was, was Francis Marion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more nuance to that, but he kind of planted the seed. If you're going to do it and kind of probably saw in my eyes, I was going to do it. He's trying to help steer me in the direction that was going to give me the best like bang for my buck. If I'm going to join, you must do something that's going to be cool. Um, exciting and, and not have to go like, you know, face to face with a red coat, so to speak. Mm-hmm. No, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, so obviously that inspired you and, uh, wasn't, wasn't the Patriot, uh, loosely based on him? Yeah. 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 That came out years later, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think that was a phenomenal movie. I watched that at least 30 times. (laughs) Well, I wasn't saying that that's why you joined, but I just wanted to give people context. So if like, if you've seen the Patriot hundred percent, yeah. Yeah. Like, like the main, the main, we should set some scenes here. Like the main character of the Patriot, probably my favorite movies to date though. And it did, it it did Mm -hmm. influence even more so. The main, you know, uh, Mel Gibson, the main character there, Ben Howard, right? Uh, yeah. No. Uh, okay. Wait, it was Mel Gibson and um, I was it Heath, Heath, Leather, movie, Heath Ledger was yeah his son, was his yeah. son, and then yeah. But I forget his character in the movie. But anyway, yeah, the idea of of Mel Gibson in the Patriot, he he was loosely um, supposed to be the the Swamp Fox or Francis Marion as we yeah. know him. Mm. Um, so that did actually reinstill that. I'm like, wow, this is awesome, man. Like, yeah. I want to go in a creek bed and shoot these douchebags. Like, <laughs> and I was always that kid. Like, I've heard you guys stories time and time again. Like, we would make guns out of sticks and rubber bands and we we'd have BB gun that. wars. And mm-hmm. like, we would have, you know, then paintballing and airsoft, all this stuff. We mm-hmm. were always that. But we'd have like, we'd have wartime characters we were kind of taking on, like our pseudo, like, so we had tactics. We had used those kind of tactics, like paintball wars, even. We would go to these different tournaments younger yep. growing up and, we're same with you guys, man. We had the air packs and all these different cartridges and we were playing war. I did that for a while and I did it like semi amateurly, I should say. Cause I remember we'd go to the tournaments and you'd play against like 15, 20 teams for money and you're mm. close up. Oh. You're like running like speed ball. Like you're like oh, okay. around corners yeah. and we're someone's wood, right around Whatever the, the wood ball, whatever the wood ball would be. Called, those those are fun though, where there's like 50 on 50. Yeah. And it's just crazy. <laughs> um all right so you you well actually i should ask you before you enlisted obviously your brother's a little older than you who enlisted before you uh how much older is he and in, in i guess how many years had he been serving before you joined so i think he joined in 04 and he's mm-hmm. probably about 18 months mm-hmm. like 16 to 18 months spread i should do the math quick but i'm not that smart but yeah somewhere around there okay so uh um, go ahead but yeah, he joined, I th- he think he graduated 04, if I remember right. He graduated and then he joined right after that. Mm-hmm. Wait, Drew joined in 04? How is he four years older than me and he looks way younger? You guys got some good genes. He's, he does, man. We, us Hillstroms, man, we got some great genes. Yeah, When you see him in the true. book, he looks like he's maybe pushing 30. And the cool maybe. thing is, like, I don't speak for him, but he's like 30 surgeries in at that picture. Like he's yeah. had a lot of like, a lot of life he's lived for his, he does look good. I'll give him that much. <laughs> <laughs> He's got way more hair than I do. I'm going bald already. So, I'm doing great. Um, so uh, obviously when you, when you did finally join, you had known a little bit, uh, how much did you talk to your brother, I guess, while he was in and had he had deployed before you uh, joined the Rage Regiment? Yeah. So we talked quite a bit prior to him joining and he wrote some letters back and forth, probably basic training type stuff. And there was not a lot of communication, but, uh, he did send, if I remember it, a ruck home, or maybe he left it for me when I left and he kind of gave me like a regiment to go on. Cause I, I knew I was going to go on. I think it was an option 40 or whatever. I knew like at 16 mm-hmm. when he was joining that, that's what I was going to do. So I was doing 
um, you know, 20 mile road marches on the road myself. Cause he mm. was telling me, okay, this is the stuff to get prepped if you want to make it. So a 20, 30 road, you know, mile ruck march on the side of the road was, was nothing with the 70, 60 pound pack. Um, so typical rucksack he had given to me. Um, so he went and he, I forget what the, uh, uh, was 18 series or whatever, but he ended up going through the Q course and I don't actually remember all the details. I think he broke his leg. Mm. Um, so he'd already been in a whole a couple of holding patterns just based off timing and starting the course and whatnot. I think he broke his leg and got recycled. And at that point they gave him an option to go to, I think it was sniper school or go through like, a to a sniper, to be a sniper, scout sniper up in Alaska. I forget what the whole detail was, but so he ended up not going that route based off an injury. So he didn't feel like waiting around and don't really blame a guy, but he did tell me like, Hey, make sure you do X, Y, Z. And he was definitely kind of prepping me before I got in because he knew like my heart behind being a ranger. Like that was, and I got to tab check him a couple of times. So it felt good, but you got like the cheat code to get in. Yeah. <laughs> you had a man on the inside. Yeah, he, he, he did, man. He definitely prepped me pretty good. And I had, we had some other buddies we, we grew up with that were in the military and, and none of which went, you know, special operations other than him and myself, but they all kind of prepped me like, Hey, I know you want to go this and you're that driven kid, but you'd be doing these kind of things if you want to be successful. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's, I guess fast forward a little bit. So obviously you, you, you enlisted, your brother was in a little bit and then, um, you, I think you were in Ranger regiment. Was it, or a, a second battalion? Did you get there? I can't remember a little behind or a little after me or a little before me. I think I was the rip class after you. So you showed up in so, fe- February. So I, so I joined the army before you, I think if I remember at our stories, like mm. chronologically, I think I joined before you, but what happened is I remember told you that conscientious objector that wanted to kill himself. Right. Mm-hmm. So to go forward, to go backwards again, or whatever, backwards or forward, I ended up getting, um, sorry, I get, I get confused. No, what happened was I ended up having to carry his rucksack all the time. And then we had this one drill sergeant that was just a complete douchebag to anybody that had an option 40 contract. So what he'd have us do is like, if you had option 40, you'd go up to be, you know, a ranger. Um, so he had washed out of rip back in, you know, a couple of years prior. So he wanted to be a ranger, but he failed. So he had this like vendetta against us. So he'd have us go on the bunks and just like jump and do PLFs under the ground, <laughs> like continually night after night. And then I'd carry this kid's rucksack. And I remember one time they were climbing the ropes and he was like, I didn't know the Ranger Creed and stuff. I didn't get to that extent of being that hua, as they say. Hmm. So I remember one time he's like, all right, recite the Ranger Creed. And I'm like, I didn't know it. So I'm holding this thing and I'm fatigued. And I actually burn in from like, I don't know, it was 20, 30 feet, whatever that, you know, the ropes are that you climb in mm-hmm. basic. So I ended up doing that. And then I think just a lot of compounding injuries, but I was, uh, I was limping a lot. Like I was in a lot of pain all the time. And I went to the, finally, I just, I had to go to sick call. Like something was going on. So it's an MRI. And they're like, dude, you got Christmas trees in your legs, like from your hips down, everything's like it's shattered. Um, Damn. so I did go on like a five week hold where I had to go and kind of milk it. Um, we actually cheated the system. So like I found a way how to get around the second MRI. So I didn't actually clear but I, I kind of skipped the system in a sense because I knew how they were working the system. Um, so I got them to essentially clear me without doing the second MRI. Um, so I got to go ahead and get back into my, you know, finish basic training. So that that's what put me behind from, mm. I think, when you joined to where I mm. got to regiment after you. You know, I think there was a rip class after, I believe. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. And then, uh, you know, obviously we both went on our first deployments in 07. You went to, you went to Afghanistan. I went to Iraq. Um and was it in that first deployment that your brother was injured? I can't remember. Yeah, a few months into my uh, first deployment. So we were stationed in Jalalabad, uh, which I've been seeing on the news a lot recently, which is yeah. very trippy. I like recognize things and like, holy crap. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, 
So we were there and obviously I'm a young private, but we had just the, the element that we were with and it was, it was phenomenal. We had some phenomenal missions. We had good gear. We were just doing a lot of fun stuff. And I remember because I'm so like in the Finnish culture of my background, they call it Sisu, like this, in, this intestinal fortitude, this drive never to quit. I just always had that. And maybe it's the little man syndrome in me that just doesn't let me to quit. But I remember there was times where we were getting, you know, people were getting cut for weight. So there'd be like a couple of sergeants. I saw a staff sergeant get cut and I was on this mission, like as a saw gunner, as a private. And I'm like, I just had a lot of cool opportunities presented at a young age. And it was, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and until, until I didn't. <laughs> hmm. And there was this day we, uh, we were chasing this one target. And so we were ch- essentially, Intel was telling us, hey, he's in this, this area. So we were chasing him around. And um, the way we were tracking him and, and the, uh, the source went dead. So then all of a sudden he popped somewhere else in the country. So we flew over to Bagram. And so in, in the Jalalabad area, we were at the compound was kind of, kind of crude. I mean, it was, it was nice, whatever we're fine, but it didn't have a lot of like, we didn't have MWR. We didn't have a lot of, if you weren't like a sergeant or tab, you weren't getting a phone mm-hmm. um, t- typically. So I remember getting there and I get to the MWR and um, if you remember what AOL was back in the day. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah maybe still around. I don't know, but I haven't used it for years. Actually, since that day, I don't think I've ever signed back in, but so I get there and I sign into AOL and there was a resting message on there. And I don't know who it was. I don't remember, but they're like, Hey, call home. Your brother's, your brother's likely dead. He's been blown up by, by an ID. So my brother's in in Iraq and, and to kind of contextualize things, him and I were very close in age. He was always kind of better. And and I was kind of, I was in his shadows, but I've always kind of looked up to him. He's always been my hero. Um, We golfed together. We played hockey together. Everything we did was like, we were best friends. Um, and so like that day, like, like my life, like, as I knew it was over, like I didn't, didn't know anything else. Um, so I remember like the emotions kind of come like fresh again, almost, but I remember sitting there like, just, oh shit, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Like I'm this young ranger private that's got my life in front of me. I'm doing really good. Like as far as like a pedigree and, and working my way up the ladder, like I'm doing really good. Um, and I'm always volunteering. I'm always working super hard, training at off hours. Other privates are screwing around. I'm doing like online curriculum, like, you know, or like the curriculum I brought with me to like how to advance myself in the military. Anyway, so I remember going back to our uh, temporary uh, tents or whatever they're called, shoes or whatever. Um, and I'm sitting on the steps, just like just marinating in this news because I didn't know what to do with it, man. It was so raw. Um, and, uh, we had not talked on like one time when we were both deployed together in different mm. theaters or whatever, but I didn't think we talked maybe, I don't think at all actually, which is kind of weird too. And it's, uh, but it was not a lot of technology happening back then. So anyways, um, I'm sitting there and my squad leader comes up and, and, uh, good dude. He's a, he's a phenomenal squad leader, good, good leader in general. Um, and I tell him, he's like, oh, what's wrong, man. I'm like, brother was blown up, man. He's like, no way. Like kind of laughs about it actually. And I'm like, no, seriously. And he's like, no. So we kind of sit there and finally he's like, oh, dang. So he sits next to me and he's super compassionate. And then uh, my team leader walks up. Another good guy, but we, Rangers are always screwing with each other, right? So like, to what degree do we do this? So he's like, dude, what's going on? Like, He, he walked into this thick presence and I'm like, I didn't say anything, but Twine's like, hey, his brother was hit by an ID over in Iraq. And he starts laughing at me. He's like, yeah, good one. Because we, we're always kind of playing that mm-hmm. game, right? Like, yeah, you're, you're, Humor is not super fun. It's kind very of very dark humor. <laughs> Pretty dark. If if that that's a joke to him, right? Like that's yeah, that's his first response. <laughs> oh yeah. And that, so like that's everybody's response though was like yeah, right, and they're laughing about it. So I kept this bandaid scenario, ripping the bandaid off, making it feel like it's a shit again. Um, but anyway, so I'll fast forward a little bit. 
not going over too much detail here, but um, our commander was like, Hey, let's, let's coordinate. Let's figure out what's going on. Let's get him to go see his brother. Um, so what, as far as we know, he's still in Iraq. He's, he's still stable or not stable. He's in critical, but he's still alive is what I was told. Mm-hmm. So they're like, we're going to fly to Iraq. You know, he's, he's, as far as we know, what we were told by other commands is he's probably going to die, but we know where he's at and we know he's alive. So we're going to try to get you there before he dies. Mm. Um, and I didn't realize at the time. Just imagine hearing how, that. Yeah. That's insane. Well, and see, I wasn't supposed to be around when they said it either, though. Like I wasn't outside the door and the door was still open. They didn't know I was around. So they're being somewhat candid and real about it. So they're sure. telling my leadership. Um, but they didn't, they didn't know. Um, but the fact that it had the, the, the forward thinking mentality to like, Hey, let's get this young ranger back to see his brother. Like that was their first thought. Right. Like, and, and not just the fact that how much money it takes to like get a guy from Afghanistan to Iraq, it's really not a cost effective thing to do mm-hmm. logistically. It, there's a lot of challenges there. Um, but anyways, and I've told the story before and I know Dan, you've heard this before, but there's a lot of different like things that happened to make this possible, but I end up um, going many different places and, and many different stops and, and route, but I end up, kind of following him logistically back to Walter Reed in DC. Um, and I didn't realize at the time, like how many strings are being pulled and how many people were affected to have to support that mission to get this young private 19, 18 year old kid from Afghanistan to DC with, you know, one set of clothes and no money to his name. How, I didn't have an idea on me. Even. How hard was that? Like how long did that take for you to basically fly around to different places? And like, what was the process of that? Like before finally ending up and finding your brother? If I remember it, it was like, I, I honestly, I don't remember. I, I want to say it was like 30 hours. That's kind of what I was kind of come some in that time frame about 30 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the longest stop was probably in Qatar mm. or Qatar as they might, might call it today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just crazy because like, I remember one time and actually the first time I we went to a civilian side bird was in Qatar. And I remember getting there and they're like, Hey, you guys are me grounded. I think it was for like 12 hours until the next, um, trying to blank on the name here, but customs next custom shifts comes on board because we're going from military airspace to a civilian airspace mm-hmm. so if you board the plane we had to go through customs because new country and all that stuff so they had no customs guys on the ground then to to deboard us and like literally it was like one of those things there's a lot of small details that kept clicking to make this work before mm-hmm. like it was like god was like moving things like as a chessboard mm-hmm. um, which i found out was one of my commanders i think realistically but um anyway so i remember like hearing a a knock on the door of the bird and all of a sudden like the door opens and they're like, Hey, it's private Hillstrom on this plane. And I uh, look out and I'm like crossing the door and I look out and there's this like dark pimped out uh, suburban out there. And uh, me and one of their dude jump off this bird and they grab our bags and we're in this suburban. They put us in the back, put this black sheet over us. And we're like, we're just bombing off through these Jersey barriers and all these checkpoints. And they get us to like this random place. I won't go into too much detail about, but anyways it was just a lot of crazy things and well, like a black um, sheet like you guys had to lay down they had to cover you like some like born identity type stuff yeah they're like you can't what? you can't be seen like yeah they're like this is not you don't you don't exist here right now mm-hmm. um i don't want to get too much detail about the, some of those things but at the end of the day it was like uh, i didn't know at the time i was too young i didn't have enough exposure experience all that kind of stuff to understand what what was actually happening and how many logistics were at play to make this this weird small event to where i could go see my brother before he died especially the fact that like he kept getting moved around theater, like different places. Um, but, uh, so anyways, yeah, the, the, probably the hardest thing for me though, is like when I got to Qatar, um, the civilian side, you know, everything's in Arabic, there's nothing in English and, mm. you know, I got to find, find somebody to get my tickets and try to figure out how to I have no ID on me. I have nothing. 
Mm. Um, one set of clothes I haven't eaten for a bit now. And, um, anyway, so I get my tickets, go to my, go to my, uh, terminal. And, uh, I remember like all of a sudden it wasn't like in the States where they like board, you know, one, one section at a time. It was like a whistle goes off and all of a sudden you see this bull rush towards the, towards the jet bridge. And, uh, there was another, uh, some European that was like, if you want this bird, you better run. There was people like, like pushing each other down, like girls and ladies getting slammed on the ground. To like, no, you're not getting on. So my understanding later on, they're like, they double book these flights and who gets on gets on. Wow. It's kind of like, kind of like Southwest, but they don't remember the people in the process. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then to go forward from there, what was that experience? Like when you finally met up with your brother? Man, that was so surreal. Cause he was still alive. Like, I didn't state, hear anything. Stateside, right? I yeah, I was stateside, but I didn't, I didn't hear anything. I had no, like no cell phone. I tried call my, I did talk to my parents, $35 phone call at 30 seconds in Germany and couldn't really hear them. And it was like, whatever. So when I see him, it's like, it's like seeing a ghost. Cause in my mind, I've kind of played this scenario that he's dead. Mm. Um, and I'm pretty, I'm, I'm distraught, man. I haven't slept really good in a few days now, like a day and a half, whatever. And I'm stressed out when you're stressed, your, your body doesn't process information near as good either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember I got there and he's in the cable gear and stuff in DC and come out of surgery and he's all doped up and, you know, contextually we golfed a lot together. Right. And then right before his deployment, he bought this brand new set of clubs that were all kind of measured for him, which wouldn't fit me because I'm a short bastard. But I remember the first thing he says, his eyes open. He's like, you can have my golf clubs, brother, or whatever he says, something like that. Right. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck, man? Like, this is the last thing I care about is golf clubs right now. Like, you know, hey, I love you, man. So glad to see you. Now, golf clubs, right? Well, if you want them, you can have them. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but uh, so, but it was like symbolic to me, right? Like, that was one of the yeah. past times we enjoyed together. So I'm like, all right, no, I'm gonna be positive here. It's who I am. I'm like, no, brother, you can keep your golf clubs, but I will take this pretty sweet knife that you probably won't need anymore, right? <laughs> so he's got this knife. I should have had it for today to show you guys. But this sog knife I've had for you know two more deployments. I used it as a cop. Um, save someone's life with it. Like mm-hmm. I've done a lot of cool things with this knife. Like I've freed elk from fences. Like this knife yeah. has been everywhere with me. Mm. It's getting kind of rusty and that's, old. It's my funny because that's the, the company, only but... brand of knife that I that I rock is Sog. Because it's oh, really? perfect to have on horseback. It cuts rope fast. Like you said, you can cut through fences pretty quick. Well, this is one of those gear knives. So it, it's mm-hmm. like a Leatherman, but it's got a gear system. So you get more torque with it. Yep. And like as a as a cop, remember there was like a, a vehicle by the water. It was like going to the water and someone's in a vehicle and like. It's like to break the window. It's got this little prong system that mm-hmm. the gears really mm-hmm. awesome for breaking windows. And like, I've used it to stop fights, like all this kind of stuff. It's been pretty awesome. Wow. That's nuts. So I, shout, I can't shout imagine. Out, shout out to SOG. Maybe they'll sponsor us. Hey, uh, you know, SOG, <laughs> if you hear this I'll and you want to sponsor, sponsor us, we have a shelf back here. We could easily prop a few <laughs> knives up. <laughs> That's just crazy though, to think of the mindset of how you almost have to tell yourself, my brother's dead. And just to prepare yourself. Yeah. Like to get to that moment that if that were the case, I can't imagine it makes it easier, but you're just constantly in your head about it. And it's just hard to wrap my mind around what that's like. It is, man. It's one of those things that like you have a blank canvas growing up, right? And you start to get a little bit of splatter as you go to school, you go to, there's like all these elements that pop up and you, in your mind, you're going to paint like a masterpiece, but really it's a bunch of splatters that are kind of coming together, right? That make your life. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of those events. I, I didn't dictate the fact that you got blown up, but it happened. Yeah. But that, that starts to bias your mind about what your future looks like. So now like as a ranger, I've got this sense of hesitancy, like, is this my reality now? And I still deploy multiple times after that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like I just, you know, try to escape out of my reality and to be a conscientious objector. I didn't do that, mm-hmm. but it did put this doubt in my mind of like, okay, what's this all for? Mm-hmm. Um, 
especially when I heard the story and how he got blown up. And I'll let him tell that at some point to you guys. Yeah. But the yeah. the version I heard early on when he was pretty pretty messed up, I was it pissed me off. It, like it it really irritated me. Mm. Um, well, you get the wrong people in leadership positions that are you know taking people because he lost buddies. Like it wasn't just like he got blown up. There's other people with him. Well, obviously, for people listening, he made it out. Yeah. Well, he's in the book too. So <laughs> he's I mean, in it's, the book. Yeah. It's very, story. it's very cool. You guys' story together, yeah. I think, is is pretty awesome. Um, what we did with the with the book, it was a great idea. I can't remember who, whose idea was it. Yours? Was it Tom's? I can't. Uh, I don't remember. But I don't remember. But it was a great idea to have like your individual stories and then have a shared story between you two and kind of, you know, telling telling a side of each other's story, mm-hmm. but from your perspective. I honestly think it was your idea because the first, uh, I should say duo that I photographed and interviewed was a husband and wife. Mm. And I think that idea segued into, Oh, well, we yeah. have Jordan yeah, and Drew right. and mm. yeah. Um, so I, I remember you telling me this, which is really cool. Cause I, I want people to know about these types of programs. So I know your brother, like as he was recovering through Walter Reed, there was, there was quite a few kind of cool things that happened while Oh, heck, dude. Yeah, dude. One time, I'll tell you one story before I go. I don't know if this is the segue you're trying to bring up, like, because there are a lot of cool organizations that prop up these mm-hmm. these families, man, like to make to make families unite and be whole again and try to get some semblance of normalness. There's so many awesome organizations like like the Fisher House. They housed my father for like a year mm, and he geez. stayed there. My brother stayed there. And like the people that came through to support them and they had like country artists that would come and sing private shows for them just to show them how much they cared. Like that was cool mm-hmm. in itself. But when my brother was still inpatient and, and Walter Reed, cause I spent like a month there, man, I got to spend a lot of time, like making fun of him running the hallways. I had my best friend from childhood come up. Like we broke elevators. Like it was, it was nonsense. Like I, wheeling, I like wheelchair races with like cripple, like, like yep. amputees run through the hallway, like racing with them. I could see this. Dude, it was, it was reckless, but it was awesome. But I remember one time my brother, like on drugs, he was very sexist, man. I'll call him out on this. Like nurses would come in to give him like IVs and pick lines. And he'd be like, nope, not happening. Cause like in, in his defense, there was a couple nurses just happened to be female and they were younger ones, like butter bars coming through and like kind of practicing on them. And there was Mm -hmm. a lot of crappy things happening right prior to him getting to Walter Reed, like, like not just male practice, but like on steroids, like some bad things Mm -hmm. were happening to troops. Like, and there was a lot of investigations. You can go research yourself. And I actually saw some of this stuff firsthand myself, even my own surgeries actually with, you know, hindsight now. But so anyways, I remember one time, uh, he was all angry about some stuff. Some nurse had come in and he got kind of angry with her and kicked her out of there. And some other male nurse came in and tried reprimanding him for like, she's an officer, give her respect. He's on drugs, man. He'd been blown up. And, um, (laughs) I remember, I remember, uh, remember those TVs that like, they're like old school TVs are like, they're like, I don't know, like. 18 inches by 18 inches, whatever. And they're on like a swivel system. Mm-hmm. So you like oh, pull yeah, it out yeah. in front of you and watch it. Yep. So like, that's what they had. It was this big old loud springy system that we could pull out in front of you to watch a TV. And it was not great quality. I'll tell you that much. And uh, so like, I remember he was watching some stupid show and I was sitting next to his bed trying to hang out with him just, just to be there with him. Right. And he was angry, like very angry at that time. Um, and Ben Stein's clear eye commercial came on like clear eyes, dry, like dry eyes, clear eyes, like whatever. And, and I'm not shitting you when I say he took the TV and threw, like hit it. Like I'm talking way out of the way. Cause it just annoyed him. You just, you set off very easy. And uh, so he threw the TV out of his purview, like get it out of here. Right. And, and it was like a movie I'm talking, not even seconds later, Ben Stein himself walked through that door. <laughs> he manifested <laughs> it. 
dude, I'm telling you, it was like, it was out of the twilight zone, how the commercial was there. It was like someone planted it and the technology wasn't good enough. I, I don't believe that was possible then with what he had, but when he walks through that door, he's got a goofy long tie that's down to his crotch. He's just this weird, goofy guy, but he's just down to earth and nice, man. He, he loves the troops. Really? He's just so nice and compassionate and caring. Yeah. His, his heart is great, man. So he gave us some books, <laughs> sign them for him and clear eyes are awesome i can just imagine him hitting the tv and then all of a sudden it swivels like and behind the tv it's ben stein <laughs> now it was it was cool and you know what so the weird thing is like i've always been my brother's like in his shadows and when he was blown up i'm still in his shadows so like i'm there i'm this i'm this ranger right like but in civilian uniform and, and my dad's in the room as well at that point and so he's like signing this book for my brother and my dad. I can feel the tension with him realizing like, Hey, my other son's a soldier as well, but he's being completely sidelined. And I have my own emotional scarring. That's already been happening from other deployment, all this stuff. I can't process anything. And remember my dad was like, Hey, would you mind giving my other brother? He's, he's a ranger, by the way, here supporting his brother. So like to see my dad kind of step up to realize like the, the, the depth of what was going on in my heart too. That was actually pretty cool to see, mm -hmm. you know, from a father, just understanding the the gravity of what was happening then. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, correct me if I'm wrong too. At some point you guys, uh, one, later on, I think in your brother's recovery, um, you guys got to do some things with the capitals, right? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that happened in, um, I'll kind of segue to make two stories one, cause they're kind of combined. But I remember one time I flew back, um, went to deployment again, all that stuff. And then, so, you know, deploying with the, the guys and then we came back stateside again. And I remember then it was around Thanksgiving time. So I don't know how long it had been. I forget the months when it all happened, but I remember around Thanksgiving, I got a call and saying, Hey, can you get some leave to come back for a couple of days around Thanksgiving to come to DC? And I'm like, probably, you know, so I got a, got a leave request, you know, submitted and, and approved. And, um, there was like a company and I want to say it was a pharmaceutical of sorts, but I don't, I don't remember. That's just what comes to mind, but someone donated, um, like one, one entity donated tickets for the whole family to fly to DC. Another entity donated like three minivans. We had a couple of kids in our family and a couple, <laughs> um, someone donated like a full Thanksgiving feast, uh, to our oh, family. Wow. So in fact, the weird part was, is like the whole family had never been together to date because we, some of us older kids in the family had already moved out, been in the military mm -hmm. and whatnot when the younger kids were born. So we, he hadn't even met some of the kids in our family yet, which is totally wow, surreal. That's crazy. Like, I, I can't imagine what your guys' like grocery shopping was like. <laughs> like, like five shopping carts. It was a pain in the rear, man, telling you. You guys would be that annoying family when I walk up like with toothpaste oh, yeah. and like a couple apples and you got five carts in front of me. Bloop, like, can I bloop, just go ahead, please? Bloop, bloop, <laughs> bloop, bloop. Jeez. Oh, man, that's PTSD right there. Screw the military. Go right back to that stuff. No, you're, you're spot on, man. But good thing you were too young to be buying apples back then. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, anyways, no, so it was cool. It was, it was awesome. But yeah, it's like the, the capitals then they were like, the, I'm always been, been a big hockey fan. That's thing. Probably Dan and I have probably been so close yeah. because we both had that common love of hockey. Like we're both mm -hmm. Rangers and all that stuff, but then we both love hockey. We were roommates and we had jerseys on our walls and had a lazy boys and we're always watching hockey and playing hockey, video games, whatever. Like that's, I think probably our biggest, like what made us bond so close was the mm -hmm. hockey love for hockey. He liked some shitty teams, but that's, Wait, did you guys to play together? Uh, same unit, different okay. platoons, uh, different locations. I don't think we ever were co-located. We did. No, in Iraq, we did. My third deployment, we were both oh, Baghdad. In, uh, yeah, Baghdad for a while. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep, forgot yeah. about that. So same platoon in that area then. 
Well, no, so, we're in the same, like, like literally we play video games in your room. Remember? Yeah, no, oh, I remember okay. now. So like typically on deployments, there's usually two platoons, but they're not always from the same company and they're not always, uh, yeah, they're not always from the same company. So sometimes you'll have some, like one platoon from one company and another platoon from another in the same location. What, but usually what, you have two together. What video games were out back then? Was that Halo 2, Halo 3? I think it was Call of they Duty. Call of Duty. Oh, okay. That yeah, was, Halo was, probably, but I sucked at Halo, man. I hated that game. <laughs> Halo was on its way out because uh, Call of Duty kind of started taking over. That's when Call of Duty oh, started okay. getting big. But uh, yeah, it was, that was fun. So where did, where but, did um, your... Oh, go ahead and finish that because I definitely want to hear where your life took you after your service. Well, yeah. So you're kind of asking about some of those organizations and just a kind of quick sidebar because I loved hockey so much. And the cool part was I was always a Blackhawks fan growing up. But mm-hmm. um, at that point, there was a certain player, Oveshkin, that was kind of making some noise in the mm-hmm. NHL and um dc where we were at we were very close to one of the uh verizon center i think is what it's called in dc Mm -hmm. where the Mm -hmm. capitals play and the capitals organization had some some phenomenal players and some of the managers and whatnot would come down to dc or to walter reed and grab um transport um veterans to you know the games and like one time remember we went to some fancy restaurant first time ever had oysters was with you know some capitals players and um cool part was we got to use like there was an amazing uh, viewing area for handicapped people. And it was awesome because we had people in wheelchairs. So it was like the perfect scenario. You buy like these <laughs> nosebleed seats and you automatically got these perfect seats in a wheelchair accessible area with sweet leg room and catering services and sunreal. That's awesome. You got to use it while you have it. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Man, I, I remember this is completely different, but. I remember one of my sisters, uh, I think it was one of my sisters, maybe it was one of my aunts, but anyways, getting injured and like having a boot on, mm-hmm. uh, going to amusement parks. Best thing that could ever happen to you. What you get a like couple you lines? Just, oh yeah. You get, That's you get rad. to go up the handicap ramp, which is usually the exit. And then, uh, and then you go just straight to the front of the line. It's great. Well, I'm not an amusement park guy, but if I'm fortunate enough to have kids, I'm like, you're wearing the boot. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Rochambeau in the parking lot with a boot. If I'm taking your ass to Disneyland, you're wearing the boot. Like 10, 10 years too big for him. Yep. You're wearing it anyways. That's awesome. So so after um, everything, where did your life take you afterwards, after your military career? So I got out of active duty uh, beginning of 2011. Well, hold, hold um, on. Before you jump into this, because I, I, I don't know if you're going to talk about it, but Jordan had an interesting separation from the military let's just say that Mm. um because it yeah a lot of people don't well i know and and a lot of people don't realize this but there's a lot of reasons why people get out of the military and i I, i'll let you tell your story and tell your perspective but i'd like for you to go from there if you can or if you're willing to yeah that's it no that makes sense that's definitely a good good point and i think where i'm i think this is a leading question too maybe i'm wrong i don't know when one of my deployments, I ended up getting malaria. Like I think like 16 of us got it from our unit from Afghanistan. And Jeez. Mm-hmm. like I was getting like every day, like 100 to 103 to 105 degree fevers every day. It's cyclical and it re- reproduces in your body. And at that point, they kept telling me I got some viral infection. They're like, I remember call, be calling it like a pussy. Like I remember like that's what our medic, not medics, but our battalion PA or whatever said. Like, you know, could be such a pussy. Drink some water. Here's some ibuprofen. Like that's the, like the what we were dealt with yeah. one time they told me to drink alcohol like that was their solution yeah whiskey kills everything <laughs> yeah that's right just drink enough apparently but anyways i remember like every day like, i remember like if i'd stand up to pee i would i would collapse in the toilet like i'd hit my head off the toilet that's how bad it got Jeez. so i'd be vomiting and just every day i'd be just sick and 
I remember there was a weird shift that happened again. It was like, I'm not making this up. I'm training out in the field training and I'm, I'm, I'm collapsing. I got this blazing hot fever. I'm trying to wear all this gear and, and soldier on, but I'm, I'm like, I'm actually physically dying right now, but there's this weird culture is like, we don't believe you until we do. And when we do, you're actually not worth your time to invest in you anymore. So you're kind of outcast. Right. Mm -hmm. So my entire life from this point, I'm always pleasing everybody trying to do the best I can. Always when they say, give me one, I'm at the front of the line every time. Like I'm always willing to give myself. And so all of a sudden I become sick. I didn't, I took every medication I was supposed to take. They found out that the medication we were given doesn't cover the strain of malaria I actually got. Mm. They didn't know that till after the fact. Right. Wow. So after a few, like maybe four weeks, three weeks of it reproducing in my body, I go to Mexico, which was not a great idea, by the way, if you get malaria, don't ever go to Mexico after the fact. It's, I already had bought tickets and like, well, you're going to be fine. You'll heal up after you take some more ibuprofen. So I went. Um, one of the guys that was going to meet us there didn't actually make it, but he didn't leave a message with the hotel and he was in the hospital. They're like, Hey, your buddy's got malaria. He's not coming. Mm. So at that point I knew, okay, this is what I have, but I'm already down here. Let's party on. Right. So like I literally, I'm being an idiot, just stupid decisions, man. Um, and it got to the point, like one of the last days I was there, uh, we were drinking at the poolside bar and I remember going to the bathroom and never getting back up. Mm. Um, I don't know how long I was out for, but I remember waking up and, um, there was some random people around me carrying me and it was dark. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm in Mexico still. I have no, I don't speak any, like no habla espanol is like the extent of my, you know, Spanish. So I don't know anything what they're saying. In my mind, I'm like, I'm, my, my organs are gone. They're going to yank these suckers out quick. <laughs> like that's in my mind. That's what's <laughs> happening. Right. Like probably some nice amigos that were carrying me, but they didn't look nice at the time. All right. Don't, don't judge a guy. Um, so anyways, I, one of the Jordan Ballon, man, this guy deserves the world. Man, he's, he was such an awesome ranger buddy. He came with me down there and um, really was awesome. Once we found out and I got that sick and he's like, all right, dude, you got to stay in the hotel room now. Um, so the last day we were there, we're going to the airport. And like, that's when it gets real. Like my body is shutting down. Like I, I can't breathe hardly. I'm, I'm convulsing. Um, my whole body's drenched with sweat. So we're like at the, at the terminal waiting for our plane. And I'm talking, I'm just like shivering. Like I'm talking where I can't control my, like my, my mobility at all. I can't talk. Jeez. And so like Jordan goes by an Indian blanket, which I still have to this day, by the way. Um, he wraps the Indian blanket around me, like some of the most compassionate things a, a ranger could do for a buddy. Um, and the shitty thing is before we plane, like get on the plane, I'm already through like security. They go and strip search me. Like they think I'm probably just a drug mule, like carrying drugs. Right. Cause <laughs> why else would you have these symptoms? The, the the baggie did not hold. No, the cocaine sack burst <laughs> and you're convulsing because of no overdose. No, 28 bags have been okay, but that 30th bag you should not have done, guy. <laughs> so, yeah, man, it was like, and, and everybody around me can hear them. They're mostly Americans going back to America and just like, just talking mad shit quietly, but I can hear them and I was just getting pissed. Because um, I know at this point I've got malaria and I know kind of the road ahead potentially. Never had malaria, so I didn't really know what the consequences would be. But anyway, so... um get to the States and I get to the tarmac and uh, we land and they're like, all right, we got emergency on board. We got to get medics on board. So they pull me off and we get to like, we're, uh, it was Phoenix or whatever, but get on the jet bridge and uh, there's like a wooden table they have there. Like it's a little bit wider. And they literally put me on this thing and they strip me down naked because they have no idea what's happening. They, in my mind, they're still thinking I'm this drug mule, but I'm dying. I'm over ODing on drugs. So I'm naked. And then they let the people off the plane. So I'm Jeez. sitting there naked. So I'm all like, hey, I'm finished. Don't judge me, all right? You know, that's my thought too, right? <laughs> it's cold in there. Don't judge. You, you normally <laughs> get in saunas <laughs> naked, so it's okay. Exactly, man. Okay, I'm just going to throw that out there. No, anyway, so it was 
there was a lot of small things that really pissed me off. And I remember, uh, so I fly there, I call my parents. So like the, my, so Jordan actually goes to bat. He's like, Hey, this guy has got malaria. We just found out like he's had symptoms. We didn't know he's got malaria somewhere, but he's got it as well from deployment. So then he calls ahead to one of the directors of the airport, actually. So mm. the director of the airport drives with his little cool little golf, golf cart scenario to the, um, to the jet bridge. And about the same time, my fever broke. So like I, I became not symptom free, but you know, somewhat I wasn't convulsing anymore. My fever started to break. Um, I can speak again. Um, mm. so, you know, you ever watch movies back in the day, a lot of times they thought these people were demon possessed when mm -hmm. they had malaria yeah. because they like, they would try speaking and don't even come out fluently. Like it was just so weird mm -hmm. and yeah. you'd be shaking and just violent, violent shakes. And, um, so anyways, Jordan tells this guy, he's kind of my tour guide now, like, Hey, we gotta get this guy like back to the States, get him through customs and get him to the next plane. Well, they're like, no, we're getting like emergency services now going to the first hospital. I'm like, no, I'm not. my family's going to fly here. I'm still single and stuff. I'm a young kid. Guarantee my mom and dad are going to try to fly here. So I'm, I'm thinking about my family, the kids at home, I'm like, no, I'm going to get back home with them. They can take care of the family still. Mm -hmm. So like Jordan's like, no, dude, don't do it. I'm like, no, I'm doing it. So we end up like separating ways actually, which is kind of crappy. Um, bad decision shouldn't have done it flew to kenosha wisconsin no chicago chicago illinois my brother picks me up we drive seven hours and the whole time i'm going through these cycles and i'm like i passed out in the middle of the hallway walking to my next flight like after jordan's like dude you're an idiot i'm like no i'm good so like smacking my face on the ground because i'm going symptomatic again not making Jeez. great decisions but i'm i'm jacked up so like that was kind of the, the preface to like malaria to kind of took a toll on my body because a month and a half went by before they, they diagnosed me Mm -hmm. Um, and so I went to a lot of, uh, the VA, the medical system in the hospital and then the military sucks when it comes to stuff that's kind of unconventional, like they know malaria, but they tested me or I went to Madigan kind of reversing here. I went to Madigan a couple of times to get tested. They wouldn't test me. They would not test me for malaria. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I have it, but they're like, Nope, I'm not testing you. So that's the kind of system you deal with. Um, mm -hmm. so I get to go to Mexico, all that stuff's already been a few weeks by the time I get diagnosed it's a month and a half with malaria in my body reproducing. Oh, and I remember I get to a medical hospital in Michigan and it's a small rural area. It's like a band-aid aid, aid station, you know, not, not super equipped, which is my fault, not theirs. But um, I told my head, I went to the ER. I'm like, I got malaria. I need to get tested. I need to get admitted. And they're like, okay, well, you're not symptomatic right now. And so they end up testing me and, and it came back negative because the way that it works is if it's not reproducing and active, the smears will come back negative oftentimes. Mm -hmm. It's a false yeah. negative. So I remember... So I went home, my parents, folks, house, whatever, get to the front door and I collapse, hit my head again. Like I'm, I'm out. And, uh, How many knots did my you parents... have it in your head and face by this point? No. So when I was a youth, man, that's my parents. I used to be a headbanger. I used to hit my head really hard every day. I didn't get my way. That was my way to like get my way. It was a, I was a headbanger. So like it was pretty calloused, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, so take some tangents here. Long story short, as they ended up admitting me and it came back negative another time, and finally they got me positive when I was symptomatic. So I'm like, no, I'm not leaving. Like, I'm holding this place hostage. You're going to keep me here until I'm symptomatic and you test me. Um, they end up at that point, like, it, they didn't know what to do then. Like, they called the CDC. The CDC actually, I remember on a speakerphone, like, we don't know what to do. But that was the response. So like, now I hear the CDC, like, all this, they're experts. And I'm like, oh, that was my experience. I don't trust them a lot. They literally, on speakerphone, like, we don't know what to do. So like, and I get it. Like it was a low line person. Like they're just a clerk of sorts, but like mm -hmm. I heard the CDC and I'm dying and they don't know what to do. Like they're supposed to be the people mm -hmm. like disease control. Like what the, what's going on here? Um, so anyways, 
they end up uh, like my lungs collapse, my heart stops. Like I'm on all this, like I go, like I'm rejecting platelets. Like everything is just, just jacked up. And I end up getting a, a trucked over to another by ambulance, another bigger hospital. And they still don't know what to do with me. And they finally get try some different drugs to my fever starts to break. But I remember one night I remember sitting there and like, I'm so out of it, dude. I'm like, I don't remember a lot of it either. Sometimes it's been people been telling me like, some of the stuff that happened. I don't, I don't remember. Um, but like some days, like I wanted to die. My head, my head hurt so bad. I couldn't see. Um, I got pneumonia. Um, I remember sitting there one day and like, I, I stopped breathing a couple of times. And I remember them telling like, I was a nurse or a doctor to my parents. I was kind of fading in and out. I remember them telling like, if you guys are like praying people, you better get a, you better get a, you know, pastor in here. It's just about that time. Like that's, and I don't remember seeing like some kind of light, but I remember not, not feeling anything. I remember not seeing anybody. I remember just not being just weird, this weird space that I was in. Um, so I got, anyways, and I was recovering. I remember this is what really shifted my mindset with the military. I remember sitting there, my brother flew in he was still recovering from his injury. And this is a long time after, but he's still, still not all together. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a staff sergeant at this point. I remember uh, he, uh, I forget the rank. I want to say it was a Colonel, but I forget calls in for Madigan. I think he's in charge of Madigan or second in command of Madigan. And I had told people in the CDC that I had tried to get tested at Madigan, but they wouldn't test me. I think that's what ruffled some feathers hmm. realistically in hindsight, but he's like, you're being recommended for UCMJ. And my, it's on speakerphone. My brother picks the phone up and disconnects the speaker. And he's like, this is Sergeant motherfucking Hillstrom. If you want to come and talk to me, this is where we're at. You're going to fight me. You're going to fight me over this. Like he went to bat for me. I'm not a big cusser, but that's regurgitating what the guy said. Right. And in, in that moment, I realized I'm just a big pawn in this big picture. Like I did nothing wrong. I did everything right to this date. And now I'm going to get in trouble for almost dying. Like yeah. they're going to strip my, my, that's probably a specialist at that point. They're going to strip my specialist rank, right? For not, for not taking my medications, what he said, but I did take my medication. The medication was wrong. Um, so anyways, yeah, I, I recover over time, but the, I went to a lot of doctors. I paid out of pocket, out of pocket as a, as a young, young soldier, because the military would not give me proper follow-up care. Mm. They said, we can't unequivocally say what's wrong with you. So we're not going to treat you. Like these are phantom pains you're having. Like my stomach, I couldn't digest food. Mm. Like I was, I was throwing everything up after like months later, I could not digest food. So I ended up going to some holistic doctors and they kind of explained what happened. And to, to date I'm on diets for it. And I still, I break away from that. And I suffer the consequences, but I remember like, even with the VA, they're like, well, we have these kind of matrix, we matrices we use, and it doesn't fit within our, our boundaries of knowing what to do with it. Cause every person has different, you know, fallout from that kind of stuff. Well, because mm-hmm. of the duration I had, my body was essentially cooking over time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your body doesn't always bounce back from that. So like IBS being one of those things they talk about, like, what do you do with that after the fact? Right. So anything like even the like malaria got denied as a, as a combat related like they wouldn't even combat or service connect me with that. I'm like, really like insult to injury, like not even a big deal, but come on guy. And so basically they just medically retired you after that. No, no. I still deployed and stuff, man. I still fought back, but I remember like, I remember one night, like trying to climb to the third story of the building. Cause I was in the third story. Um, I think, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah third floor. Yeah. Um, I remember at that point, climbed to the third floor. I got to the second floor and I collapsed. This is after I'm treated. So malaria is actually quiescent. It's gone right at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it could come back, but at this point, it's it's not not active. But my my lungs and stuff were so shot, man. I climbed to the second floor and I collapsed. I had to sit there for like two hours to recover, Jeez. to get to the third floor, 
But over time, I picked back up and I deployed again. Like I got kind of back into the swing of things, but then I get sick again. Mm. Um, so at the last, uh, they put me in the arms room while I was recovering them. They're like, all right, we got to pull you off the line for a bit because like you'll be out training and carrying guns and you just, you like just, you hit your face. Like you just collapse. Your lungs could not handle it. And that was the big thing. My lungs would not recover. Mm. Like my, my mind was in it. My heart was in it, but my lungs could not, could not carry through. The oxygen wasn't being produced. So I would just collapse. So anyways, I ended up going to the arms room and that was a, that was a shit detail, man. I hated it. Jeez. They did not treat arms groom guys. Nice, man. It was, but you know what? I said, screw it. Uh, I actually got a degree before I got to the military. Um, started going to online school. So I got associate's degree for even ETS. And so I didn't even, I didn't even medical retire. Like I didn't get anything actually. Okay. I just got out of the military. I just didn't, my plan was to be a lifer. Like I was going to be a long-term soldier. That was kind of my heart, mm-hmm. but my brother's injury, some political stuff that happened in my last deployment. Uh, I won't go into today cause I don't feel like throwing those guys under the bus today. And being but, sick. Um, uh, That's hard. Anyways. Um, yeah. So that, that kind of made me sour with, uh, the military at that time. Um, I kind of felt lost because in, and it's changed, I guess now to a degree. Um, but when you're in a, in a force, like the Ranger elements or a seal element or, or some other, like the seals, I've heard a lot of stories and, and people that have kind of reached out to me, even like when I've told my story, they're like, Hey, I was in that same boat, man. I was awesome. They loved me until I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it's you're hard. not providing a value anymore. And all of a sudden it's like, let's cut this, let's cut this fat out. We don't need it. It's a waste. And, and not just that. It's like, we want to squash his voice because we don't want him creating a negative culture around here, which actually I understand, yep. but there's a better way to deal with it than making you feel like a piece of garbage for just being a soldier. Yep. Yeah. It's hard. It's like when you wash up, just push it to the side. Well, remember when we were at the, uh, um, Ranger rendezvous, uh, Sergeant major Mike Hall even talked about it was how like mm-hmm. he had a story where, you know, somebody was deciding to get out or, uh, actually go over the fence and take the long walk and trying to get into the unit. And, uh, and they were like, wow, this guy's a piece of shit. I can't believe he would leave us. And he was like, why do you have that mentality? There's somebody else that can easily fill his shoes. If anything, you should be excited for them Proud and them, supporting yeah. them. Like that's how you, you know, show that you're you're a good leader is to be there for them no matter what decision they make. And there's definitely a mentality though, because I got a little bit of that too when I decided not to reenlist because I was going to reenlist. Um, I went to my E6 board. I even told them I was going to reenlist. And then I had my heart issue and ultimately decided not to reenlist. And there was definitely a little bit of pushback for a little bit that like people were like, oh, piece of shit, leaving in the fourth quarter, like all these other things. I'm like, so much more to it. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, you know, it's just the mentality, right? I mean, think about like a football team, like think about a, a, a varsity football team or something like that, right? You're in your, your last year, whatever your team's solid. Uh, you're you're running at your best. Sure, there's somebody that probably could take your position. Yeah, I can see that. But now you are leaving. The rest of your team for a minute at least is going to look at you and be like, wow, man, we were so effective with you. How could you leave us? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's just that mentality. And you just have to, you just have to, I don't know, look at look at it different and have the, yeah. you know, 30,000 foot view. 100%. And one thing I want to touch base on, and I want to give Dan you some accolades and then let people know that have been part of your podcast for a while and following you guys. Um, we went to Ranger School together and pre-Ranger together. Um, mm-hmm. And that was an experience in itself. But I remember, like, and, and you may not even know why, and I don't even quite frankly, a lot of times know why, but I knew that 
if I didn't have you as my battle buddy, sort of my ranger buddy, like I didn't, I didn't go through ranger school. I did not graduate. I, and I know that for a fact. And I think we all have to lean on people around us. And mm. so I've always had this great respect for you because I knew that you were one of the reasons why I got through. And I have to kind of come clean with one thing, but uh, so when we were in Florida, right, I think we got recycled. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't even know, honestly, why I think they said we were too arrogant or too prideful. Like we were yeah, a lot of ranger, or re- mostly recycled, like red, like a lot of regiment guys. And then a couple of guys from a uh, group and, yeah. and they recycled us and we went through and got recycled again. All right. We had a fun time. Actually, we got recycled. We did some fun shenanigans. It wasn't too bad, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I almost quit though, man. I tell you what, I almost quit ranger school. I almost did. I remember calling my mom one day. You guys don't make fun of me. That's fine. I don't care. I remember calling my mom and I was like, Hey, I'm done. I can't do it, man. Just I'm done. And she's like, you know, you're going to regret it the rest of your life. You quit. Right. I'm like, I don't care. Like I'm done. I'm broke off. And she was like, you know, pull the cliche mom thing. Like, you don't know why God's doing what God's doing, but you know, he's got a plan. And that's the last thing you want to hear in that moment. But it was enough to like, all right, well, I can't let my mom down. So I guess I'm going to stay here. Right. Um, so appreciate that mom. But anyway, so I, I do stick it out obviously, but I remember then we went through again and I remember I'm, in my mind, I'm not getting recycled again. And I remember like early on in the Florida, you know, exercise, we starting to get evaluated. There was a stupid like situation that unfolded. And I remember like they had these probing elements kind of coming at her, you know, our, our uh, fob or whatever you want to call that patrol base. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have like these fixed guns that you don't ever want to leave. Like you have them there for a reason. Like there's got, you know, sectors, se- sector sketches and these fields of fire. Like you've got like a patrol base set up for a reason the way you do. And I remember like there's a probing element, one or two like guys shooting at us. And this one guy, and I don't know who that was being graded at the time, but it was like one of my buddies. And I remember like the guy that was being the gunner, like he was trying to take the whole 240 system off the line to go in after this probing element, which is kind of a test. Right. Mm-hmm. So I knew that if they got caught, like it'd be my buddy's grade. So I'm like, no, screw this man. So I'm like, dude, you're an idiot. Put it back. And it was not my, I was not in a leadership role. I was just whatever, like on the line. And I remember the RI caught me doing it and it took all the pressure, the, 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 the light off of being graded anymore. He just went on just beeline to me, dude, tackled me. Like he tackled me in the patrol base is our eyes. And he's like, by the way, you got two major minuses. You don't ever do that again. He's like, you're, you're like being in support and all this stuff. He got pissed. And I, cause I was trying to be like, I, I did probably come off rock because I didn't want my buddy to get screwed because some other idiots being dumb. Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. don't pull the 240 the tripod and like start screaming about like, we're getting attacked. Like, dude, shut up, sit down, man. Got a big gun over there. Shoot it. Um, <laughs> so I remember like, so I get two major minuses, right? The third one's out. You're, you're done. Mm-hmm. And I already got recycled. So I remember, uh, I remember one night we were on this long March and I don't know if you remember this or not, but like, there's this one, like all night March. And then we got to this Hill. We were about to assault this, like this area and take over this, this group of this, this patch of ground as earth to become your next patrol base where you can dig in and finally get some rack. Right. And I remember like, I was tired. I got real tired on this Hill. It was comfortable. And, uh, I fell asleep. And I remember this, 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 RI, his name was Wynn, right? Came over this hill and he's like, he caught me sleeping, but, but I was quick. So I ditched off this hill real quick, got back into like in the group of people and it was dark out. He didn't have his mono nods on then. He didn't know who it was. He just saw mm-hmm. a ranger sleeping. So I ditched off this line like you would never believe. I got back into like a gaggle of people, like acting the part, right? And they put us in formation and they tried to do this integrity check. Like, who was it, right? I had two major minuses. That third one was, was done. I'm, my integrity was gone. I had no integrity left. It was gone. <laughs> I was, I was adapting, right. Chameleon style. So, so anyways, <laughs> to me, if I remember, right, we, we walked all night, like we didn't sleep. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, to this day, I kind of feel bad about that, but I'm like, you know what? Sometimes in life, you gotta, you gotta get by, I guess. I'm usually the great yeah. guy. I'm usually the guy that's willing to give, but that time I was like, nope, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not falling on the sword tonight. Sorry, boys. <laughs> they probably, I mean, uh, honestly, they probably would have walked us in circles the entire night anyways, maybe let us sleep an hour or two, but, uh, they were just trying to find a reason to get us moving. Touche. You're likely right, but uh, I remember that. I still kind of feel bad, though. I'm like, because I, I, I do have integrity. Like, that's really who I am. My character is an integrity-driven person, but, you know, sometimes you adapt to a situation, and that's one of those nights I kind of felt like I let my team down, but, you know, yeah. that's life, right? That's right. Well, uh, um, so uh, obviously uh, you got out, and but I think you still had a commitment to serve, obviously, because your next decision was uh, – to continue to serve the community. So, um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, and, and I did have a serve, like my, my heart was to serve people. That's just in my, and today still, it's the same way, man. I'm always trying to find ways to help people out. It's just, it's in my DNA. But, um, so I decided, I was like, you know, I can't do the military. It's, just, it's the enough doors are being shut. It doesn't feel like that's, I'm fighting too much upstream now. So, and, uh, newlywed and whatnot. And my wife's like, we did one deployment together. She was not really like the best, emotionally supportive wife like she wanted to be but it's just really hard for her to rationalize like why would mm. i send my husband overseas it's stupid and, and, and i'm not faulting her for it in, in the slightest she's a phenomenal wife very supportive in nature but um sometimes it's just best that you just cut ties and go a different path together now so and it's not wrong man it's it's not a judgment thing if people want to get out like do your thing no, yeah so um yeah i decided to join the state patrol they were hiring and, and the economy was not great either man so that mm-hmm. was part of it probably mm-hmm. too is like not a ton of jobs when I got out and then being a ranger, like, what do you do with that skill set? with, I've got a college degree for law enforcement. So I'm like, Oh, that's probably a good path forward. So I got a criminal justice degree at that point. And then I joined the state patrol. Mm. Um, the funny thing was like a couple of times they're like, do you want the job? I'm like, yeah, but I'm not willing to wait either though. Just FYI. Like I, I want it. I passed all your tests. And they're like, you have to wait like six weeks. I'm like, all right, well, I'm done. And they're like, well, maybe we find a spot for you. So they found me a spot into a, the arming class a six week arming class. Then they're like, hey, everyone in the army class, like eight people are going to go to the field for a year. I'm like, all right, I'm gone. So like, no, we got a spot, man. You're going to the academy. So like I kept playing that card because <laughs> I was not willing to go through like that private mentality again. I'm not yeah. going to be this cadet, like guarding the governor's mansion. Like I don't even like the governor right now, honestly. I don't <laughs> like what they're doing. I'm not doing it. So I'm in National Guard still. I'm doing the National Guard thing on the weekends, whatever, in the summertime. And so then I go to the State Patrol Academy and man, I had so much fun there. I screwed with people. Like I had some 82nd dudes that were there. I screwed. I like, so like it's basic training kind of right. Like they'll flip your beds over and your wall lockers. And I loved it, man. We were there. We were stuck. I was married. So like I'd go home on the weekends, but it was like, I don't know, man, it was fun. It was, it was like grade school. So like we would do this thing. So if your caster wheels and your bed weren't dressed, right dress and your hospital corners weren't right. Like they'd flip your bed. So like I would go into his room and like screw up his hospital corners. I'd go screw his caster wheels up or whatever. So his bed would get tossed and he found out it was me. So he'd go back and do mine. And <laughs> yeah, we, we had a good old time. Uh, so yeah, I just stayed patrol for, um, probably about four years. Mm. Um, and I was, but I want to actually kind of park for an, a second. Cause I, I do think people struggle in this area and not knowing how to like advocate for their health. When I went to state patrol, like I had some demons, man, I should have probably dealt with like for my brother and some of our combat stuff, smack and other areas. I kind of struggled to, I never really processed to kind of just put the old rock in the rucksack and mental in the, the mental mentality, right? Just keep, keep kind of pushing on, never dealt with anything. So it's kind of just compounding. And I remember sitting there with this, this psychiatrist, man, this guy should probably be eval. He's, he's psycho himself. Like there's no way this guy would Most pass of them are. Test. That's the secret. Most of them are. <laughs> yeah. 
dude, this I'm talking like, like clinically insane. He was just a weird man. Mm. Uh, so I remember sitting there and he's like, Hey, so I like awkward interview. In fact, when I was walking through the parking lot to the parking deck to get to the, the elevator to go up to his office, some other private, you can, or a cadet rather, like he was crying walking out. So I knew he passed, he didn't pass. Right. I'm like, Oh shit, this is sucking. Like he's on a bad day. So I'm probably going to fail too. Um, but I put all my eggs in this basket. So like, this is my next career set. Right. So I'm going up there and he's like flipping through my folder. He's like, Hey, I realized you were in special operations. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and he's like, Oh yeah. <laughs> Doesn't say, he just kind of like awkwardly like making these noises. And I'm like, it's kind of sitting there like what do you what do you do like do you respond or like how does that work but more rhetorical weird noises <laughs> so so anyways yeah he's like oh so uh yeah we, we can't talk about this he's like if by the way if you talk about anything military there's likeliness that you'll fail this exam or this evaluation so we'll just keep that over there you're, you're okay man um we just talk about everything else though hmm. Hmm. all right so anyways i i passed the email but i want to talk about that because i'll go forward this is, this is important later on in my life so i was a trooper for four years and dude i was miserable i hated it mm. I, I had a lot of awesome opportunities a lot of cool serving opportunities um but like one time for instance i i wanted to like always get back to even the local police departments and sheriff's offices i worked with and i worked in a rural area oftentimes for like hours by myself so like go to a domestic violence call and they train you in the academy like you never go by yourself I'm like my backup's 45 minutes away. Like, what do you, what do you do? Like, so I'm that ranger, like I'm not willing to wait. So I'd go in and tactically not having the upper hand a lot of times, but that just, it, it was a situation that was dealt. But I remember um, watching some deputies clear a couple, they had some drug, drug raids that went on and I, they asked me to go with them. And it was so miserable. Like, I'm like, this is dangerous. Like you guys are, you guys are jacked up and I love you guys. You're good people. You got families though. You got to think about, and I actually went sidebar told the sheriff, I'm like, Hey, you're putting your guys out there to get killed. Just so you guys know, like they should never be going to a house ever. Like they're that bad and they're out of shape and they don't exercise, but their hearts are phenomenal. Some of the nicest guys I've ever met. Mm. And I, I legitimately to my core felt bad for their families because the death was pending. They just didn't know it yet. Mm. Um, so anyways, I donated time actually to go start training them. We went to shoot houses and I put together like starting with like tape, like the, uh, the engineering tape right and put like glass the houses. shoot house glass houses yeah yep. certain glass houses and they're like this is stupid i'm like no it's not we gotta start barney barney five style man very crawl walk run right so we did those man for a while we did the we finally did these shoot houses and i got then i got the reserves involved and some other agencies we did some fun stuff mm. um we even got like department of homeland security there one time we did active shooter training with like medics like reserve medics and stuff and mm. teachers and it was it was cool but one night I was training these guys, went back and you know, sat in the sheriff's office. And I was like, just, just mixing up with the guy. And, you know, he's thanking me and whatnot. And then, so I was off duty. Right. And I was going on shift later on that night. Like I worked like uh, a four to two or whatever. And uh, anyway, so I started my shift then and uh, I was on break actually. And I got a call on the radio and then it went silent. Then they told us to call into dispatch. And anyways, this guy shot himself in the face and I just talked to him. Like Whoa. it was, mm. it was tough. And he was, he was a veteran man. And, um, it was tough. It was real tough. And I found out there's a lot of stuff that happened in the agency that was kind of causing sweeping things under the rugs that should have dealt with like alcohol dependency issues. And so that was really tough. Like it really, really kind of affected me too, having to deal with, you know, seeing some of the aftermath of that, you know, being another agency, having to kind of respond to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just talked to them, you know, and everything seemed fine on the surface. And the sad reality is I was dealing with a lot of the same things, man. Like in, in my emotional state, then I was dealing with some demons I should have fought off and I never did. Mm. Um, but so that, when I saw that I was, I was really affected. 
Um, but anyway, so I kind of still didn't deal with it, right? Just whatever, I kind of, but it pacified it with whatever. Um, you know, so like my whole family life, we're foster parents. We've, we have kids in our home and now and we end up adopting some boys and um, kind of going through the family life, trying to be there. But I was, it's kind of always detached for a long time. I'd, I'd kind of check the boxes, but I wasn't, wasn't really there. And a lot of times I was always tired from working swing a graveyard, but then I ended up being miserable in the state patrol and, and um, didn't like some of the politics in the state patrol either. I thought they had a kind of a dumb mission too, quite frankly, like one day I stopped a car and like my 25th speed and ticket of the day. Oh, and I remember stopping this car and I was like, I don't know, 14 over something, whatever, arbitrary number, nothing crazy, but he's speeding. Right. And I gave the guy a ticket for five over whatever, 113 bucks or something. And I remember Johnny in the back seat was like, dad, does that mean no go-karts or whatever? I'm like, he's like, yeah, that's, we don't have the money anymore. Like they're going to vacation on the coast in Long Beach, Washington. Like it just crushed my spirit. Like that's, that's what I'm doing in life is like taking Johnny's go-karts away. Like, no way I'm done. Mm, that's tough. So it is like, I did anything wrong, but I just felt like there's more to life than that. Mm-hmm. And there's a time and a place like speed control needs to be a thing. Like there's too many fatalities on these freeways and like, I'm not saying the mission's worthless. I just, I didn't feel like I was really buying into it myself. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I went up uh, laddering to a local police, police department. Uh, I did that for a few years, still dealing with my own demons and like still this, this culture of if you come out and they've like said in briefings, like, you know, if you have PTSD, like see somebody, but just so you know, we'll take you off the streets and like, you won't really be able to be a cop anymore. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like, that was kind of the culture I still lived with and, and the, the agency. And, mm-hmm. um, I had other buddies that I talked to offline that had the same problems. They want to come out, but they just couldn't, um, for the reprisal, like the, the fear of what was going to happen. So, but one, one scene in particular that really kind of affected me even deeper than the suicide actually was this this call I got was suicidal veteran that came out actually it was just suicidal subject. But then I went on our, uh, you know, MDC or whatever they call those units in the car. And we had been there before and I found out, so he was a veteran. So when I put a note in there, um, so I got there and there's this one officer that he had a different kind of lifestyle and that's fine. Do your own thing. But he was very crass and negative, not patriotic in the lot of senses. And so we get to the house and he makes this offhand comment as we're walking in. Cause you go on these, a lot of these nuisance calls. You, you do, man. Like people that are continually calling about stupid stuff. Dogs noise complaints next door and shit. Dog, dogs. Yeah. Like stupid <laughs> stuff. Neighbor threw litter over my fence with no proof. It's like, oh, why am I going to this stupid call? But <laughs> so I, we're walking up the sidewalk and it's dark and I, I don't know the house and never been there before. And, but in my mind, like I'm struggling with PTSD, like with symptoms. I don't know if I've never been like diagnosed, but I know I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. And this, this veteran, is suicidal as far as we know he's got a gun in the house that's registered to him like some of these data points we get and i remember walking up to this on the sidewalk and this other other cop with me was like man why doesn't he just do it already wow and man my heart broke man i'm like i i cussed this cop out and i said don't even come in the house man i would rather die in this house than you come in like like what's like why would you first say that one but yeah to have you come in the house is actually more dangerous because you bring that energy with you too right mm-hmm. but uh so anyways, I remember going in the house and the guy did, man, he had a gun in his throat. Like, Jeez. like he was, he was yeah. ready, man. You can tell he'd been drinking. He was a Vietnam era veteran. He was struggling, man. He needed no support system. You could just tell from his lifestyle in the house and whatnot. Jeez. Um, so I shut the door, man. I shut the other cop out. Like, I don't want you in the house, which is dumb. Like, I'm not saying that I'm advocating for like bad tactics, but, um, that was the card I was dealt and I played it. So mm-hmm. I ended up walking straight over to the guy after I realized like he just, talked to him for a minute didn't pull the trigger i'm like all right well, i'm gonna go sit by the guy and i said hey i don't know what you're going through but uh i'm a veteran man and i'm struggling myself and i see a mirror right now i see you as the, the reflection of myself mm. and uh and i'm here for you man 
and I'm praying with a man just said, you know, I, I don't know the solution, but I know I have a, I have a God that cares that I know that I've, I've gotten through a lot of days because I prayed to this God that I just feel like he's been the answer for me. And I, I don't know if he's gonna be the answer for you, but I, I know there's more than life than this. Mm-hmm. And I just sat with him, man. And, you know, for a few minutes, he's like, you're a veteran. Then he went back to a gun in his mouth and I didn't say anything, just sat there. Sweet. And it was a long call. We sat there for a while and um, he breaks down because he starts seeing crying, you know, tearing up and whatnot. And over time, he takes the gun out of his throat and uh, he breaks down and starts crying. He's like, people don't even understand. They don't care. Like he was dealing with a lot of, a lot of issues. And he told me a lot of stories and we actually connected for a while after that too. But he, uh, he, he had some demons he was, he was fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he lost almost entire, entire unit he served with. It was like two or three that survived out of like 40 guys. Like wow. he had been in, he had been in some crap and he never had a good support system. You know, he was sick. He had malaria as well. Like a lot of the things I could, you know, kind of mirror from my own life and not that I had anything to, to touch what he had to deal with in, in any regards there, but enough, enough overlap that I can really feel for a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one day in my life that kind of had a huge pivotal moment to like, okay, the rest of my life, I'm going to serve this community because I've given so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the day I actually, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to get help regardless if I get fired or whatever, like I'm going to get help myself. So I did, I sought out counseling and that was one of the best decisions I ever made is to, to reach out and put my you know, as they say, take a knee, drink water, right? Like mm-hmm. you have to, you have to be okay to ask for help. I think it's super healthy. I think it's good for really anybody to seek out, you know, if they have issues or problems, you find out about yourself. So that's mm-hmm. crazy though, that just, you had to be in that situation. Yeah. The the deal is though, is that, you know, veterans are killing themselves at a, a scale I would never, I never imagine. Right. Mm-hmm. And he was just one of those guys that was about to be a statistic. And if, if their officer walked in, my guess is he would have shot himself. Mm. He, he, he had all the indicators. He had drunk enough. Like he had told me enough. He's like, I, I, I bought enough alcohol to know that I'd be inebriated enough to get past any emotion of the kids that I had, that I have, that my, you know, my family, that I still have. So he had planned it out to that degree. Like I knew I have to get past this point to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm miserable, but usually my kids are enough to keep me alive. Mm-hmm. But the kids weren't really around because they didn't know what to do with him. Yeah. They just, it was hard. And that's where I really struggled because like my wife is an amazing woman, but oftentimes we were kind of detached because she didn't know what to do with this. Like it's, it's a, it's a weight that it's, it's a burden wasn't meant to be hers to carry, but I was giving it to her to try to carry. Mm-hmm. But the way I would kind of say is like, if you, if your spouse breaks your arm or her arm, you're not, you're not a doctor. You shouldn't try to set that arm, man. Mm-hmm. Unless you're hockey players and you break your nose then you should probably set your nose on the, on the bench. <laughs> story um but anyway so that was one of the pivotal turning moments is on that scene on that night um you know i got an award for it which is really cool that they kind of highlighted this veteran veteran connection and stuff because i i planted some seeds about having a veteran response go out with chaplains even on these calls to Mm. to to be able to understand and empathize with these people there's a connection there right um and so they slowly started implementing things like that if there was veterans and they had some chaplains that were veterans um to go out on these calls with anything that was suicidal veteran related, let's put these guys on the call as well, mm. you know, responding to the call. But anyway, so that was one of the turning points and uh, fast forward a little bit because uh, I ended up, you know, I didn't really know have a, have a roadmap for life, but um, end up leaving law enforcement about, you know, about a six months, eight months later. Um, and uh, we're, we're young family, got two young kids. I told my wife to quit her job and we just bought a new house. And so, um, but I need, need a new career path. I need to do something new. And we end up, uh, is either going to go back to college with on the GI bill and, and work a part-time job or, um, get a job. So I ended up getting a job offer like a day later and it was in construction realm. And 
the cool part about that is I'll spend a few minutes here, but uh, try to paraphrase a lot of this. We've done a lot of, a lot of rabbit trails today. Um, so anyways, long story short, I end up working for this construction company and they're a phenomenal family, family owned company. Uh, they really cared about me and where I fit into their organization. And so I started like running a shovel, like, what are we digging up dirt back to a private mode again? Like I'm in civilian side, but I'm back to being a private. I'm at the mm-hmm. low, lowest side of a totem mm-hmm. pole. Like everything that's crap work I'm doing, like I'm going into like septic situations where there's literally active, active shit running through septic systems, commercial grade, and I'm having to tie in. So I'm having to like stop sewage somehow with buckets and shovels and dirt and trying to get concrete in there and just like that's what i'm dealing Jeez. with again but you Talk know i'm a young father yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, heard that one before <laughs> but but i was willing to scrap to get by to provide for my family like i was just going to do what it took right um and so one thing led to the next i ended up being pretty good at, at leading men and, and understanding equipment got certified on some equipment starting you know like small sites doing tasks here and there not running like the whole construction site the building but to a degree they'd leave me with projects and task me with whatever running guys on on you know days at a time or whatever um but it's a really forward-thinking company and they started to get some more dump trucks and they wanted to start running their you know kind of a dinner division of trucks and they got you know in theory they're going after some big jobs that they were hoping to win they're going to start buying a lot more trucks and so i in a, in a kind of a semi um how do you want to phrase this kind of like another additional role is going to kind of take on was to run kind of a trucking fleet between, you know, the manpower, finding jobs, payroll, billing, all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, I agreed to it, you know, just carte blanche open, but I said that the one caveat would be, I want to do it on a technology. Cause I'm, I'm not an organized person, but I grew up around technology. My family's been in it um, for 35 years, give or take. Um, my dad's been a developer for years and I grew up around that, but I was kind of rebelled against it. And I really wanted to be that guy that was in the tech field. I grew up, digging holes and eating dirt and farming and ranger cop. Like I didn't, didn't want to do the IT thing, but um, so we ended up partnering with my family's company, this construction company myself, and we created a SaaS product um, and I'm missing a lot of details here, but that's okay. So we created a SaaS product that eliminated paperwork for dump truckers. And yeah. um, the cool part is a lot of efficiency gains right there in itself, a lot of headaches off the drivers and what took a lot of times these office controllers, these billing and payroll specialists weeks to get paperwork back that honestly look like they written down with Crayola, missing a lot of data on there. Like I've seen them come back with human shit, cow shit, like blood, like really? they're not clean. Yeah, that's bad. Mm-hmm. So, so that was one of the things that we were involved with. And uh, over time, I, so I started selling this product that was part of, I was like the, like the inventor of it. it was like, it was my, I, me and one of their guys that one of the owners, we kind of collaborated on it, but a lot of it came from like, we developed it. I like, I would map it out on a piece of paper and then I'd go to like lucid charts and Adobe XD and I would map, I would design it. I had never designed anything, but it was, I've always been an idea guy. So anyways, we got this product now that like, now I'm going through like copyrights and trademarks and patent office. I'm trying to figure out all this stuff, like learning, you know, it's like getting a degree real time. So mm-hmm. anyways, you know, fast forward a few years and we're about 17 States now and the company's growing and we're hiring more people and that's been cool. But so part of that process then was, as I've kind of learned, I, Kind of like the carpenter's son. He he learns carpentry by default, right? Mm. But I realized I've always been learning from my father and my brothers and whatnot, but I never really gravitated towards it. But I'm actually really really dang good at it, actually. Yeah. So over the last few years, they're like, hey, you gotta you gotta come work with us. Like you have too many skill sets to be kind of parked where you're at right now. We want you full time with us to to come partner with the company. So, um, you know, currently right now, partner with my dad and my brother uh, in the software development world, and you know, we're serving companies from Ford down to 
down to startups. And, you know, one of the projects that I get to work on is um, it's called Apex Target Systems. And I've, you, know, you guys both kind of know about it, but for context, um, another ranger from 375 um, that's got a combat jump and stuff, like really awesome guy. He's a competition shooter. He's just, he's a brainiac, super bright guy. Mm-hmm. He started creating this product that um, we're the software piece. Now we, we create the software to support the hardware and the, in the grand scheme of things, we're kind of running the show when it comes to the technology piece. Um, but it's his baby, like Jamie is brilliant and, and we're, you know, a pivotal piece for it now, but anyway, so it's a modular target system that we're really hoping will be implemented in, you know, regiment at some point and hopefully other areas of the military, but I'm a big data guy. I believe data could really radically change the way we operate in professional settings and military type settings, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, other things, law enforcement, they're way under equipped across the board. Like it's all static shooting. You know, you're all online, you're shooting supported on these barrels and, like nobody's equipped to really fight under stress. So you see like these cops doing stupid things in the streets. Well, think about it. They're sleep deprived. They're the unions have stepped in and don't really allow for once you get hired, there's no more physical like tests. You don't ever have to test again for physical. You can eat donuts all day long and nobody cares. So you're, you don't train to be proficient anymore. You have to qualify once a year and you're supported and half those guys cheat anyways. I've seen it happen. Mm. So what happens, they get put in these high stress situations and they don't know what at the time, what laws that they're filtering through their mind, like laws, case laws, policy, all these things of what to do at the time. So it's like fine motor thought process in a gross motor environment. So it's a recipe for disaster. Like Jeez. the George Floyd case, dude, I can spend hours on that talking about how the whole system is flawed from day one, including the why that guy was even there. Like, don't get me started on that whole situation. Everybody, everybody lost. Can of everybody. worms, can of worms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But where I'm going though, is like, I believe this system because it's so data driven, it'll see who shot the target when. So they're going through it. Let's say a shoot house, right? You got four guys, fire team going through one guy goes left. One guy goes right. One guy goes left. Like in the way that we go through a door and stack and, and whatnot, but we can see what shooter hit the target when their accuracy, the timing, the target can drop down on, like say it's a body armor two to the body, one to the head. It'll, it'll drop down. Um, and then real time, like leaders can see on an application on their phone or their tablet um, or a TV screen, you know? what shooter hit where, when, how effective. Um, so the idea behind that is I want to see real-time feedback then. Let's say you're shooting and you're inaccurate. I want to have impulse back to the shooter then, real-time data feedback loop, right? And I believe over time, we're going to train more effective shooters. We're going to save lives. We're going to actually take less lives because we're more effective. And we know that actually. I think mm-hmm. a lot of shooters are actually stuck in this weird alpha mentality pride loop where they're actually very deficient in their skills, but mm-hmm. they're afraid to say anything. And I believe this in the Ranger Regiment as well. I've watched it myself included, man. I've been in shoot houses, like wanted to piss my pants because I was so afraid of, of, of failing my leaders or failing for my leaders. I didn't want to disappoint them. In fact, I would even say that in combat, I was more scared of letting my peer group down than I was of the combat, like the, the, the enemy foreign fighters that were shooting at us. Mm. I was more scared of them than I was of death. Like that didn't even care about that. I didn't want my buddies down. Yeah. But anyways, so like with technology, Zeratech software development is our company and we have the opportunity to actually make an impact in a lot of companies bottom line because technology affects a lot of people quickly. Yep. So we have this, we have the ability to scale good benefits. Um, and so that's one thing now, like the passion I have for this world, it's, it's kind of coming together now, like that canvas I alluded to is I've got some mental counseling. Now I've gone through that. I've gone through business coaching, professional counseling, always there are areas to start sharpening my ability to communicate, sharpening my professional skills to communicate what the problem is. And then, so often, you know, in every single environment, there's a lot of times like complex problems like Afghanistan right now. This is a very dynamic situation. Sure it yeah. is. But if you stopped and think 
thought about it. There's a lot of complex problems that are actually a lot of tiny issues mm-hmm. that are built up to make one big problem. But if we actually stop and distill the big problem into small little issues, we can start compartmentalizing them and start solving them one at a time. And over time, you get the big problem is no longer a big problem, right? Like yeah. they say, you know, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. Yep. And so like, I've realized maybe it's the combat scenario and you realize that clearing a house or a compound, you never think about the compound. You think about the first, you know, dynamic entry, the first breach, what's your first door you're going to hit. And you start flowing, man. It's not the compound. It's one, one corner at a time you're hitting. You dig your corners, man, and do that right. And over time, the entire compound's cleared because you got the team with you. And so I think with business now, with Zaretech software development, it's been fun because we get to take our excitement for life and helping people and, and truly serve these businesses. Yeah, that's such an important thing that I actually uh, utilize all the time at work is like we have these meetings and people focus on, you know, what is the end goal? What is the what is the result? But we're not even nobody's focusing on what's the first thing we need to do. What's the first step? They're just focusing on the end game. And it's like, well, no, let's let's figure out what is the first thing we can do to move in the right direction and somebody own it and like take control of it and just do it. Then we'll move on to the next one. Don't worry about where we're going. We're going to get there, but let's focus on this very first thing and get it done. And it's something the military, I feel like maybe it's the Ranger Regiment. I don't know. I would hope it's the military across the board, but um, we do incredibly well. And uh, you're right. I think it, it translates to business very effectively. Um, there's, uh, I think that's why you see a lot of, honestly, I, again, I don't know if it's across the board, but for the most part, you see a lot of soft people and in uh, like higher ranking positions and stuff like that, starting up their own companies, um, doing incredibly well out in the world, just in general. Mm-hmm. I, I agree, but I, it didn't like, oftentimes you'll meet somebody, you'll see a podcast or whatever. And, and we're doing really good right, right now. Like we're, we're, our company is growing. We're hiring more people. I've got five new uh, like sales reps that we just picked up this team in the last couple of months. Like we're growing and doing a lot of fun things. And, you know, our clients are, are expanding our footprint or we're, we're expanding with their clients within different business lanes now. And um, like even down here in the market, I'm in now some phenomenal opportunities in the Carolinas. Um, but the idea is I, it took me a long time to get here. And, and I would say this for the longest time in the professional realm, I was, I was more scared in some of these meetings I've been in in the last few years than I was in combat. Mm-hmm. Like this business world is so daunting, so scary yeah. for some reason, but yeah. like I, I could be over in combat fighting a war and, and that was okay. But like going to a boardroom to try to sell a team on, on a product or our services is a, is a daunting, like life-threatening ordeal for stress. <laughs> I know and what you're I, talking I about. You know what it's, it is? It's so weird. You know what it is? I've, I, I think I've figured it out and maybe, maybe me explaining this will, will help you figure it out and maybe I'm completely off, but when you have, um, when you're in combat, you trust everybody around you. You trust their actions they're going to take. You trust everything that you've trained for because you've all gone through it. But when you're making business decisions and when you're pitching something, they weren't with you when you created the pitch. They mm. weren't with you when you had the idea. They weren't with you when you, you know, built whatever this was to make it possible. And so you're afraid that they're not going to have the same mindset or they're not in sync with exactly what you're thinking. So you're already playing all these scenarios in your mind of, well, what if they don't like that? Or what if they don't like this? So you're over thinking it and over processing it. And I've realized when I can remove that and it's like, well, I don't care what they say because ultimately we're going to come up with a product in the end. I've become less stressed before meetings. 
I, I agree. And I don't think, cause I've lived in this insecure world for a while. Like I didn't, I felt like I didn't have a value to give. I didn't actually like internalize who I was and where I fit into this ecosystem. And I realized all of a sudden, like, Hey, I actually have a lot to give. Like the experiences that I've had, like the entirety that, as they say, the totality of your life, the sum of all your experiences becomes who you are. Mm-hmm. And I think I finally realized in the last, I don't know, year, even I actually have a lot of value to give. And once I internalized that, you know, you, I think it was a Zig Ziglar or someone like that, you know, kind of talked about the idea of you become what you think about all day long. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever heard that saying yeah. before? So I think, you know, we, we speak a narrative over our lives and think about a sales guy that almost like he sells a cool product, but he almost like, ah, if you don't want it, it's fine, man. It's okay. Like I get it, man. Yeah. And it's like, no, I actually want to buy it. And he actually talks you out of a sale. Yeah. And, and I was doing that kind of, and I, and it, if nothing else, it was my, my countenance or my character, my, my demeanor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I started realizing like, yeah, I actually have a lot to give. And I internalized that. Like if you speak it over my life, like I do have a value to give like the skill sets I have, or these people can benefit their yeah. company will grow if they take a couple of nuggets that I can give them. So with like, you know, one of our, one example is I've worked with a couple of like nonprofit veteran groups now and, you know, like made them stop with what they're doing for a bit. Like, Hey, let's talk about this. Let's actually story brand out what you're trying to do here. Who is your end client? What's your mission here? Let's work backwards. And I'm somewhere actually seeing a lot more success now with just even basic elements of how to see success. Mm-hmm. How do you reverse engineer a plan? How do you backwards, you know, backwards plan? And, um, you know, with, with development too, is working with, with clients. And a lot of times they're stressed out and there's a lot of like, when you have a big institution, a lot of pride actually causes a lot of issues and, and they'll, they'll hedge, they'll put these walls up to be like, well, I want to make my job like indis- indispensable. So there'll be like these weird things that are happening in mm-hmm. these companies. And when, when you can realize that everybody's replaceable, like, you know, think about a bucket of water, you know, someone that holds a, a predominant role that's unreplaceable, like he's, that's, his hand is in that bucket. When you pull his hand out, there's a ripple effect in that bucket for a while, but over a while, the ripples kind of go away, right? Mm-hmm. And a new normal kind of happens. Mm-hmm. So when you can realize that everybody's replaceable and everybody's got value for the most part, people that are there have value yep. and you can help them understand their own value and they don't have to hedge anymore you actually start to realize a lot of different things that are happening that we're actually affecting by our culture now. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one example is like my older brother, the diplomat, he was a diplomat. Now he's our, one of our senior project managers, the way he communicates with the command presence, you know, like at some of these companies like Ford and, and others like that, he can communicate at a very high level, very professional with our skill sets, what we, what we bring to the table and, and distill these problems down with the team, like myself being included there we give them a confidence in their own abilities all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So now they go back as, as the, the owner of this project to their command staff, so to speak. And now they're almost, you know, I'm not saying they're being promoted in a sense, but in a sense they are, mm-hmm. they were help align our, our mission with them to help them be successful. Um, but yeah, man, it's, it's been awesome taking some of the military skill sets and, and giving them back to the, to the civilian side. I'm, I'm curious to, to kind of segue it from there. Um, as we start to wrap up, I want to know from your perspective, maybe for other veterans that are listening, especially right now with things going on with Afghanistan and, and whatnot, from your experience of all the things that you've been through, you know, what do you recommend for veterans that are transitioning or, or just trying to find their groove and to society again? Um, one of the biggest failures I made in trying to learn from mistakes, because most of the time I learned from mistakes, not from a, something cool I did or whatever, but, and I think situationally, a lot of things dictated my, my departure from the military. It was very toxic in nature. I was angry, all that stuff. Um, 
I, I cut ties with most of my military buddies. Like Dan and I kind of touch base now and again, but even mm-hmm. we didn't talk mm-hmm. very often for a while. Yeah. Um, like I even missed your wedding cause I had a, a state patrol testing. Like I, mm-hmm. I could not replace that date. Like I had to make that date or I was not going to make that class. And so like that actually kind of pissed me off. That I didn't prioritize that by the, by the Damn, way. Damn, we would have we met way back then. Yeah. I know, dude. Yeah. I was, I was <sighs> a jerk. I'm sorry. Such a jerk. I know. I feel bad <laughs> to this date, though. I should probably buy you a wedding gift now, I guess. Hey, uh, you could send it to me anytime. <laughs> no, right, it's, it's past 10 years. Go, You're go, good. Go, yeah, go. Statue limitations for wedding gifts. <laughs> <10 years. laughs> oh, it's a lot of pressure to leave just now. Um, but the idea of I, I disconnected, man, I, I threw a lot of stuff away, even like things I cherished, mm-hmm. I threw away in the garbage. Yeah. And man, I, I'm so pissed about that. Like I can't replace some of that stuff. Like just random trinkets I got from overseas from bodies, like some of Star Max gear, like I chucked away in the garbage that I had, but mm-hmm. really, really pisses me off. Like I'm angry about that still, but so I wanted nothing to do with it. Right. And compartmentalize my entire life now. And, um, so I was this lone wolf all of a sudden and I was really struggling and I, and I feel that, you know, now I've actually like been in very intentional connecting with a lot of people on even LinkedIn Rangers. I didn't even know just connecting. Hey, how can I help support you? Mm-hmm. Not like trying to sell my services, even just like, Hey man, I don't know if I have a lot to give, but what I do have, I'll give you. Yep. So to me, it's like, go out there and be proactive with connecting with veterans. So people you served with stay connected. One, yep. two is be proactive with finding new veterans to connect and mm-hmm. don't ever try to get something, but always give. Yeah. Um, there's, this, there's this message that says better to give than to receive. And it'll come back to you though. You plant good seeds, you will get good fruit from that. Mm-hmm. So and why, why I say that message is the more I've been giving out to this community, the military veteran community, people have just randomly popped up and like, Hey man, do you, do you need some help here? Like, do you want a connection here? Just random connections are popping up Yeah. and I'm never, I'm never trying to go away to ask. I'm not trying to take, take, take it's I'm, I'm give, give, give. And, and it, and it comes full circle. But the cool part is like, you know, so often we talk about PTSD and depression and suicide. And what if we stopped that conversation and said, what do we talk about positive health, positive mm-hmm. growth, mm-hmm. working out exercise, good sleep, hygiene, uh, helping careers, helping build people up. Guess what? The byproduct of that is less people are suicidal, less people are depressed, less people are having PTSD issues, yeah. not downplaying. That's not real. Sometimes medication is the answer. I'm not saying that I'm a clinic clinician or whatever there. But I do believe we spend too much energy on the negative and then the suicidal type conversations when it really should be able to build each other up. How can I support never left behind today? How can I support the 20 year war? Like I'm always going to be trying to give back because I believe it's going to help you guys. You guys will be empowered. And then at some point, someone else is going to come up behind me and support me in my mission. So yeah, it's a great way of looking at it. No, it's a, it's an excellent perspective. And I, me and you have a a lot of shared experience um, with the disconnection and then realizing how much we got to reconnect and, You've always been an incredible person who, uh, you know, can talk to people at any time and, and you've been really good with, you know, just connecting with people at different levels. So mm-hmm. I've always, I've always looked up to you for that. Just, just your, your ability to, to connect with people almost immediately. Um, it's something that usually takes me a few conversations before I can connect. Yeah. Great. Appreciate that. Um, I want to give, as you kind of said that the one pop one mind that started thinking about things I would, you know, want to share or whatever. And there was one story that I feel like I'd, I'd be remiss not to mention that. Um, when I was a cop, um, this is talking about transition and stuff and like trying to be a, a value add to the community because you understand what it's been like when, so once you get out, you should always be going back and lifting people up because mm-hmm. you know what it was like to be that guy when it gets out. So like, like screw you if you're a veteran and you're not trying to get back. Like, honestly, I own that. Like if you're not, if you've been out for five, seven years and you're not giving back, like I have this conviction now, like you're kind of a dirtbag if you're not trying to help in one regard or another, Yeah. Mm-hmm. even if it's a 
my phone call to a buddy once in a while, just nothing crazy. But anyways, I, I say that because I've had so many interactions now, people that have struggled. And for a long time, I didn't, I didn't give back. I just didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I had this situation where I was a cop in a, in a local police department and I'm working on like a swing shift and it's like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And I'm by these railroad tracks and I'm, I'm kind of like perpendicular to the road, kind of just watching. Cause it's like, it's not quite DUI out already yet, but you get some activity. People are going from bar to bar and stuff. So you get some fun activity. Right. And I know kind of where to park, where some of these bars are hanging out. Like, so I see this car and just bombing down this 35 mile zone. And it's like, it's all over the road. It like kind of goes not airborne over the railroad tracks, but it kind of goes off the ground a little bit because mm. the suspension will collapse. Right. And it'll kind of take back off. And Jeez. so long story short, I'm like, this guy's drunk. There's no way he's not drunk. So like I get behind him and uh, he's not stopping. So I got failure to failure to stop. Like not quite a, you know, pursuit yet, but we're getting to that point. So I'm calling him back up, whatever. So like find the car stops. And as it stops, like everybody bails out of the car, like it gets like all hairy and the driver takes off again. Um, or no, no, the passenger, they switch, they take off, whatever. So like two people now have driven the vehicle in front of me I, that I observe both end up being drunk. And, um, when I get to the car, there's three people and my buddy, like, he just got like tunnel vision. He should have stopped and helped me, but he didn't. He just, he like saw that car take off. He chased the car, leaves me high and dry with three people. And, um, they're all bigger than I am, you know, and it's dark. And so like, they're all kind of coming around me and I'm trying to gain control of the situation. And, um, I literally push a guy in a ditch. Like there's a water slope behind me. I push him in the ditch. I'm like, all right, I have a natural obstacle I can use. Get him out of here for a second. I've got two guys. So I'm like, all right, one guy's on my back, like behind me. So I'm like, okay, this is not good. One guy's on my front. So I, I get into a position to my body. I still got two guys on me. I open my cop car door, right? So crown Vic or whatever. So I open my door and this is a bad tactic, but I, I felt like it was the best thing at the time. You know, you don't want to put a guy in a car until you know kind of know what's in his, on his, on his body. Right. He might have a weapon. I don't know, but I didn't know what to do. Like I've got like the underhand. Right. So the door opens, I chuck this guy and he's got all tactical gear on. Like just note that he's got like, He's a sniper for sure, guaranteed, right? And uh, earlier, earlier on the shift, some other douchebag was like, "I was a sniper overseas," but he wasn't in the military. We just played that card. He was drunk, being an idiot. And you always hear those stories. And they don't, really, I don't come off as a veteran. Never even shared I was a veteran on the streets, typically. Anyways, got two guys. They're both bigger than me. One guy is a bigger. He's a he's a strong built guy. He's fighting, and I, he could take me on a one on one fight, guaranteed. He's a lot better shape, a lot quicker. Uh, but he was drunk. That did help. So I open the door of the cop car and I just push him in. I slam it shut, right? Cause now he can't get out. So now I got one guy. Okay. Now I know how to tactically take on one guy by myself, get him in cuffs. Um, by that time, more guys had showed up more support. Right. And, uh, so then they drove the other female back that had, no, the female was there. They drove their guy back. So they're like, Hey, what do you want to do? This is your scene. So I'm like, well, give me a second to breathe, catch my breath. And, um, so I talked to the guy in the front seat or the back seat of the car, got him out. We searched him real quick and put him back in there. He's in cuffs now, all that stuff. And I'm like, Hey, what's your deal, man? Like, what's you got all this tactical gear on. He's like, you know, I just got out of the military. Like I'm on, actually he's on leave still. He's still, I think he's still in the military, mm. but he was on leave. But like, he looks familiar, but I didn't know why. Just one of those guys, I like, get a face, didn't know him. Um, but I arrest him. And when I search him, he's got felony drugs on him. Jeez. So, so I've got three arrests. Um, I think it was no four arrests. We had arrested all four people. Um, and then the main driver that was driving first, I'm like, all right, so I'll go process her for DUI. And then you guys transport these guys back. I'll do the report after on these guys, whatever. So I go to the PD with her and I start talking to her and she's like, you're such a jerk, man. You have no compassion. I'm like, well, what, what am I supposed to do? Like you're driving drunk. Not my fault. Right. And my brother's got back and he's really struggling. His best friend died overseas. He's on leave of all this stuff and kind of going off. And she says a couple of things. that just trigger these thoughts. And he's like, 
he joined the army in 06. He's supposed to get out soon. I'm like, well, I joined the army in 06. And remember, I, I remembered something about this guy. I didn't know who it was. And she's like, you know, ever since he joined the army in July, like, you know, July of 06, she kept saying this random date. And I'm like, well, I joined the army July of 06. Uh. And she starts just planting these random seeds. And anyway, so like, I'm like, well, when, when did he, so when she calmed down, she realized, like, Hey, I'm sorry. We, we made mistakes. You know, I was really, I'm his stepsister. Our parents suck. Like our life sucks, all this stuff. And she loves with me. Like I'm, I made a mistake. She was like 19 and drunk. Um, so anyway, she tells me when he joined, he joined in July, July of 2006. He used Fort Benning. He was an infantryman, all this stuff. I'm like, it's a lot of commonality here, you know, yeah. like maybe I do know the guy. So anyways, um, so then I, uh, I bring her to jail, whatever process her, bring her to jail. She's in jail now. Um, they go process the other guys, do the reporting and like, uh, talk to the guy, try to get more out of him. And he was like, you know, I was in, he told me the company he was with and I'm like, shit, I was in that company. Like, but I didn't want to say anything. Like I didn't want to tell him I was in the military. I didn't know if I knew him or not. So uh, I went on Facebook actually. And I found out we had one common friend that went to my church and he was in the military as well. Same era. So I call him like, Hey, who is this guy? He's like, Oh, he's so-and-so. And he's like, he joined this, 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 this is the unit he was with. He's a sniper right now. He just lost a good buddy, man. Like he's in rough shape. He didn't know I arrested him though. It's so like my heart's kind of broken, right? And then I, then it clicks. Like he was the guy that. So before I got recycled and basic training for getting injured, he was next next bunk over to me for months. Whoa. And I just didn't. I hadn't seen him for a long time, and then years had passed, right? And mm. uh, so the fact of the matter is, I arrested this guy. And once I found out who he was, I actually wrote the uh, the district attorney, the prosecuting attorney, whoever prosecuting prosecuting attorney. I wrote him. And said, hey, I actually want to be pulled off this case. Um, I feel like based off my relationship with him now that I know who he is, I don't feel like I should be the guy. So I want another officer signed to this case, all this stuff. And then I actually reach out to the guy and uh, we talk and uh, he apologized and he kind of told me what happened, his whole story. And and like my heart was broke for this guy, man. Yeah. Um, so I actually, I talked to him like, hey, I'm going to write a letter. I already, I already kind of removed myself from the case at this point. Someone else has to handle it. I'm too close to this in this situation. So I feel like there's kind of a conflict of interest, if you will. So anyways, long story short, I went and wrote a letter to the uh, prosecuting attorney and said, hey, this guy, this is what happened. Uh, but the backstory is X, Y, Z. Like this guy really needs some clinical help. Mm. He's, he's suffering with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, lost a good buddy of his, like literally shot in front of his face, never had any help process this stuff and multiple combat deployments. Um, and uh, so anyways, they actually got him into a, like a clinic and got him help and actually dropped the charges and stuff. So like, it was oh, really wow. awesome. And we're like, we're pretty good friends now. We communicate quite often. It was really cool. It took that mm. situation. Um, but yeah, so that was one of those moments in my life. I'm like, okay, I got to do better at, at reaching back into that community and pulling them up, physically yep. pulling them up. That's what everyone needs to do. That's a really cool story. That's crazy. Hmm. Um, I meant to share that earlier. So it was more chronologically inclined or, you know, whatever, but <laughs> it, it came to mind. You said, what can you do? And I think the biggest thing is, is go back and reach, reach your hand out, man. Someone's going to grab it. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, last thing, last, uh, you know, plug, plug your stuff. I know, I know mm -hmm. you've got uh, a couple products, a couple companies you've kind of touched on them, but I think you should say it again, just so that people can, you know, it's the whole, uh, recency and what do they call it? Infancy and recency effect. So last thing to say. Well, we've been on here so long. It's getting dark outside and it's dark in my room. Now I feel like I'm on a Algazir, whatever they call that network. Now. I'm about to get yeah. Invited, but, um, 
Yeah, I appreciate that. So first and foremost, I want to give Jamie Chester with Apex Target Systems kind of a shout out. The guy has a phenomenal heart. He's a huge servant in his community um, and he's working a full-time job. He's got his life savings wrapped up in this product that I, I truly believe in. Um, so Apex Target Systems, you can go Google it. Um, it's a phenomenal, cool shooting system. I believe it's going to change regiment. It's going to change a lot of the shooting communities at whole. I think there's just a million amazing things you can do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our trucking product for dump trucks is called Load Tracks. But ultimately, I really want to kind of camp on on Zeratech software development. We, um, you know, I'll commit this right now. If any veteran out there's got an idea for a mobile app, I'm going to help brainstorm for free. I'll make this product almost almost developable without charging a damn cent to you. I mm. believe in this community that's got so many phenomenal ideas. Mm. You know, thinking about on deployment, how much time you've had, and you just kick these ideas around. But most people don't go anywhere with them because they don't know how to bring an idea to fruition. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's one thing. Now we've taken a few ideas from like a napkin drawing and made them a reality. Some being our own some being clients that we are now still work with. That's cool. So we've been through this life cycle many of times now. I'm an idea guy. You get in a room with me, you're going to get excited about your own idea. I'm going to get jacked up. I won't, I won't sleep until we get this thing into, into development. So Zeratech is a full stack development company. We do mobile apps, web apps, um, desktop apps, business intelligence tools, like, you know, analytical tag dashboards and stuff. Um, Power BI type stuff. Um, but anyways, we can take any idea and, and bring it to reality in the technology world. And then again, we work from like, you know, like Ford being one of our clients all the way through a startup company. So there's no industry we won't serve mm. and there's no company size too big or too small. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think the biggest, biggest thing is if you have, if you have a need for software development, we're, we're your company. Um, and additionally in the veteran community, if you've got an idea, uh, ping me, DM, whatever, uh, love to just mix it up and talk about your idea. Well, there that's you go. Awesome. We'll, we'll link you and, and yeah, for your sure. info so people can reach out, you know, based on what you're saying, if they got ideas or they just want a veteran to reach out to. Yeah, that's awesome. For sure. Well, well, I appreciate what you guys are doing. Obviously, been on here forever and a day now, and we went on a lot of rabbit trails. Oh, it's been a blast. Um, <laughs> it's going, like I said, it's going dark in here now. But, uh, you know, following up some of your previous interviews, like John Cena and stuff, like how the heck do I follow a guy up? But you know what? What you guys are doing for this community. I'm, hold I'm, on, I'm hold just, on, hold I'm, on. Don't say John Cena. People are going to freak oh, out. Sorry, Joe, sorry. Joe Cerna. Joe Cerna. <laughs> I was like, wait, we had John. Where was I? Sorry, sorry. John, John, mother. Uh, dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. He's going to come back and kill me somehow. Crap. He's better than Joe. Maybe that. he'll vomit. I don't care. Um, <laughs> no, I kid. I kid. But, anyways, what I guess what I was saying is I'm so appreciative of guys like you and what you're doing. I think this platform that you're building, and it's not just a book, it's not just a podcast, but this platform you're building is going to do wonders and, mm-hmm. and I want to be part of it. I want to help. So, you know, make sure you keep letting us know how we can be involved and, and plugged in guys like me want to serve you guys. And it's going to be awesome, man. Of I already know this. You guys are saving lives. You guys are saving veteran lives by what you're doing. So keep it up, man. Appreciate it. Well, well we, we appreciate, appreciate that. that. Yeah. No kidding. Well, Jordan, I'm excited to see you again in a few days. I know it's been a while, mm-hmm. um, but uh, hopefully we can at least share a beer together and uh, we'll share some more stories. I'm sure. For sure. Cheers, gentlemen.